Welcome to the Spitball Sessions. Prepare to enter the world of mechanics, the future of game creation, the evolution of design. With your two hosts, Josh Noyes and Luke Boulay, this is the dawning of the new age of remakes. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Spitball Sessions, a gaming concept podcast with no apparent purpose or a past part of Persiple. I'm not quite sure. I'm Luke Boulay, and I'll be your host for this session. I'm also joined by my good friend and our resident editor and <coughs> wrestling fanatic, Josh Noise. How are things? Well, pretty good. I was actually going to come up with a catchphrase today, but I was so busy uh, putting my face paint on up in the rafters that all I had time to do was grab a baseball bat so that I could point it at you. Fantastic. As an explanation of what we're trying to achieve here, this podcast exists as a means to examine games and discuss their nuances. Mostly, though, as you know, it devolves into nonsense segued into nonsense. Yes, that's true. So today we are going to be talking about something that has plagued the uh, the industry for quite some time. Most people hate it. Uh, there's Do they? Most people. Okay. Uh, I know we dislike it on a number of occasions, but... Um, we really want to dig in and see if there's any opportunity to uh, make this work. This being quick time events. Yes. Do quick time ev- events really have to suck? Here's my first thought about quick time events. Yep. Uh, so they started with Yu Suzuki's game, um, or officially, they were they were given the name quick time events by Yu Suzuki uh, in the game Shenmue. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that uh, considering how terrible Shenmue is, uh, we should not be surprised that quick time events are something that people don't like. Yeah, well, I here, mean... Here, here, here's what I know about Yu Suzuki. He went to school to be a dentist. Having played Shenmue, I can only come to one assumption. He found out during dental school uh, that you actually have to give people Novocaine so that you can't just torture them uh, with no painkillers and decided that Shenmue would be a more efficient way to do that. So he became a dentist thinking that it would give him the opportunity to be a true uh, sadist. Sadist. Yes. Realized that they don't actually allow you to be a sadist in dentistry and then moved on to video game design. That's basically my assumption. Yeah. Ah, okay. All I right. mean, have you played Shenmue? I don't. Th- Wait, is that the is that that game where the guy gets to like dress up as a bear in one of them? Or uh, else? Yeah, I think so. I think he, he could do that. It's basically a lot of walking around the city of. Uh, Tokyo, uh, or, or part of Shinjuku, I believe specifically. Um, and there's a part where you drive a forklift, trying to to free his his girlfriend? friend. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 a lot like what uh, Yakuza. It's a lot like Yakuza, but like ten years before Yakuza, okay. and Yakuza was a lot more mini games. I, I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of Yakuza, and I'm even less of a fan of Shenmue. And the, and the fact that it came out on the Dreamcast means that it has a way larger following than it would if it had come out on any other system. Yeah. Because well, the Dreamcast has kind of insane rabid fan people. I, uh, Shenmue might be a, a terrible game, uh, and that might be a terrible mechanic, but if it was really that bad, why did it, like, prevail in so many games in the future? Like, I, I picked out a couple of uh, yeah, obvious ones that... Um, well, you have Dragon's Lair. 
Well, I wasn't actually going to bring up Dragon's Lair. That was a. I, I, I actually think Dragon's Lair is not actually a bad place to, to actually start with well, this if we're doing a history of it. Well, I mean, yeah, so history-wise, I mean, that's well before Shenmue. Right. Well, exactly. So why, why don't you go into Dragon's Lair? Because, I mean, do you think it works in Dragon's Lair? Well, absolutely. I think that's mm. that's it. And that was why I was going to save it for later. But Dragon's Lair well, works because... Let's go into that because I don't, I don't know that I think it does, but go ahead. I think Dragon's Lair works because that's all it is. It's right. Just, it's a it's it's a story that you have to continue by hitting the correct direction, which is not even cute on the screen at the right time. So the entire idea behind it actually is if you play it on the easy mode. Oh well, I, I'm that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are very popular. I mean, they they've lasted a long time, starting out as an arcade cabinet, right. of which there are a couple, or at least they were the last time I checked at Fun Spot. Yeah. Up where we live. They don't work very well, though. They're, they're pretty broken. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, these old consoles, they get really <clears throat> so, hard to maintain. So, he, so, yeah. so here's the thing. I I should, I should clarify slightly what I said. I think the game, I think Dragon's Lair itself works. I don't think the Dragon's Lair formula would work outside of Dragon's Lair for two reasons. Mm. One is, like you said, it's an arcade game. And the whole point of, like, the whole point of the game was it came about because they realized that people were getting too good at video games. So like when Dragon's Lair came out, it was, it cost a dollar when most games cost 25 or 50 cents. It was extremely short. Even if you beat the entire game, it's less than 12 minutes uh, or less than 15 minutes. So, I mean, it was designed to just eat quarters out of you in the way that Pac-Man did once upon a time. A a lot of games were designed just to get you to to keep putting quarters in them. But that one does seem a little more blatant. No, it's 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 super blatant. But also, like, I think part of the reason it works is that, like, it has the Don Bluth animation. Don Bluth is an amazing artist. Yes. His movie's not so good, but his art is incredible. Um yes. I like Secret of Nim. I like Fievel, but I think most mm-hmm. of his other movies are... Nobody ever wants to watch Penguin, uh, Pebble and the Penguin or Rockadoodle again in their lives, ever. <laughs> um, <coughs> I didn't like Rockadoodle back in the day because I love Elvis, but, um, yeah, it's not a great movie. Um... And I think, like, he's an amazing artist, and it works because of that. But, you know, also, like you said, the unless you're playing it on easy mode, the prompts aren't on the screen. And so I think that does make it slightly different from the kind of QTEs that we see. And I think that if we come back to making QTEs work, I think that actually is probably a direction uh, worth, worth talking about. Because I totally think that definitely helps with, with some of it, is that it is guesswork as much as it is QTEs. I think as a as a uh, yeah I think as as a mechanic um, one of the major failings in a lot of these games which I was which was the first thing I was going to point out is the fact that they're they're like surgically grafted onto other games. Mm. Well I I, yes I think that's actually so I I actually do have Uh, three in my notes that I think actually do work. Um, So I have um, Asura's Wrath which is basically a game that is all quick time events. Yeah. Um, Resident Evil 4, which I think is the only game that's actually really made this work all the way through. And I think everybody would point to it as being probably the best example of quick time events. Right. What, well, how, was it really that? I guess whenever you're in con, uh, in, in combat. In cutscenes, it does it a lot. Oh, it does? It does it between the cuts. Well, we'll we'll come back to Resident Evil Four because I mean here's the here's the trick about Resident Evil Four is it's probably the best survival horror game ever made ever. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of good things to talk about with Resident Evil Four, but the way that it, I think the way that it handles the quick time events is instructive for two reasons. But uh, so the third one I want to bring up is the is the very first God of War's boss fights, which were during combat. Oh right, is that? Um... 
Kratos? Yes, Kratos. So the right. but oh, only, yes. only, yeah. only the first game. I think after that they kind of jumped the shark and they went to the point where it was just stupid. Um so what I actually have in my notes is is the reason that I think that, that Resident Evil and God of War specifically work. Uh Assassin's Wrath is a little different cuz like I said it basically is just I mean it's almost it's almost a story-driven rhythm game, let's say, or a, or a brawler that is also has quick-time events in it. Um, but so my feeling about Resident Evil and God of War is that I think especially at that time, and even still to some extent, developers don't understand what we want from cutscenes in video games. Mm-hmm. And Shinji Mikami, who is the guy who made Resident Evil 4 and uh, whatever the team who made God of War did, I think. Um, so the reason that I think it works in Resident Evil is twofold. One is because even during, like, the thing about a survival horror game is that you should never, ever, ever feel safe. And I think we we can probably do an episode about survival horror sometime, but I think the number one rule about a survival horror game, I don't know if you've played a lot of Resident Evil 4. Not a whole lot. You have played a lot of the original Dead Space, though, right? Uh, Or some of. I I put several hours into it, yeah. Dead Space is basically Resident Evil 4 in space. It plays Mm -hmm. the same, similar mechanics, similar ideas. I I take exception to never, ever, ever feel safe, but we can... But I think think the thing that makes those games, makes survival horror games work is that you always feel like there is a chance you could be... Like, you you never truly feel safe. Like, you should be able to get to a point where you can control control things coming at you, but you should always be concerned that something's going to just sneak up behind you and grab you. You know what I mean? Like like in a horror movie. Um, Mm -hmm. And the reason that I think it works in cutscenes is because you can never just watch a cutscene. Because every time during a cutscene, if you fail, you're going to die. The cutscenes actually work a lot like the the, the new Tomb Raider has, has the same idea. Um, where like during the cutscenes you occasionally have to press buttons, but I don't think it works in Re- in uh, Tomb Raider for a couple of reasons. Um, but I think it does work in, in Resident Evil. First of all, for that reason, because it doesn't let you feel safe. And I think Resident Evil, f- maybe not all survival horror games, certainly Resident Evil Four works because you never feel like you are safe in that game. You always feel like something is about to get you. Um, what you, you can't you can't sit still and watch the cutscenes. You can't. You know you can't go down a hallway without feeling so like something. So you're saying you. yeah, what the, what that adds to it by. By adding quick time events, even in the animated cutscenes, it puts pressure on you. It puts pressure and tension you sit back on and relax and it, watch it. Yes, it keeps you. There is always that feeling of dread. It, it puts pressure and tension on you. And I think with with God of War, it's it's sort of the opposite. Which is God of War is a game about feeling big. It's about feeling strong. And so most of the quick time events are things that you couldn't technically do because you don't have the mechanics to do them. But it lets you do things like, oh, I'm going to grab this dragon and slam him down on this mask, which there's no button prompt. There's no there's no skill that you have in the game that would allow you to do that. But we're going to give you this special thing. We're going to pull the camera back. We're going to let you do this awesome thing. And then we're going to return you right to the middle of that uh, of that fight that you were in. And you're going to fight the other two heads of the dragon. Then you're going to grab the next one and pull that one down on the mast. And then you're going to fight the third. You know, it allows you to do these big, bombastic, cool things that aren't and, built into the game. And it grounds you to the combat by, by again, <laughs> including you in the cinematic by having you actually do something at the same time. Right. And and I think that, that the example for both of those games is that they understand why they are doing them. And I think right. a lot of the reasons cutscenes or QTEs don't work is that either the people don't understand why they're doing them or they are doing them in... I don't want to say a lazy fashion, but they are using them without really thinking about why you're doing them. And I mean, that's the problem in, in all aspects of game design, right? Is that if you don't use them properly, they feel out of place. 
Right. But, I mean, for example, I think Tomb Raider is, is a great example of, of quick time events that don't work. Um, a, because they are, f- because the, the result of dying is far, far, like, those are some, like, if you die in, 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 uh, Tomb Raider, the gra- the deaths are so much more graphic than any other part of that game. And that game is already the, the newer good. one, right? The new one. I I haven't played the, the the second one, but the the first one at least the 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 first of the reboot. The first yeah. of the reboot. Yeah. Sorry, not the not the rise of the of Tomb Raider, which was the second one. Um, but yeah, like there's there's a scene where if you mi- mess up when you're going down this river, you'll get impaled on this branch. Um, I'll say there's a, there's a point where you get crushed to death under under boulders. Let's say that. Okay. Um, and you know, and and one hand is out like like still like like trying trying to crawl your way out um you know and and while something like that might work in let's say a dead space which is a very gruesome survival horror game it does not work in a game like resident like tomb raider which is supposed to be a empowering game i don't even know empowering but it's it's supposed to be a pulpy fiction you know it's supposed to be a pulpy adventure game not a survival horror she just got crushed by boulders it's very pulpy yes that's, that's what we call the chunky salsa rule. Well, I think it kind of differs away from the, the idea of quick time events specifically more than just just that it's it's a it's it's a total it's a deviation shift. from what's normal, and that's not so much the gameplay mechanic uh, as in the, just they just wanted to be a little more visceral. Yes, with I this mean, version of Tomb Raider. I mean, I think yes, I think part of it is, is is the tone whiplash, but also just you know, it doesn't f- you don't need it. Like mm. in the rest of the game, you're crawling, you're running. You're doing all these normal things, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I gotta crawl through this thing, and I gotta do these special button presses, or I'm gonna get crushed to death by boulders because well, we need to add some tension. That's always uh, one of the biggest flaws in quick time events is is oftentimes when you'll be playing. And I think I hate to say this, but um, at least um, Bio, not Bioware. What's that? Bioware's game? We we're just talking about it before. Uh, we Mass Effect. Mass Effect. Uh, in Mass Effect yeah. 2 specifically, I remember there was the Paragon and then the opposite of Paragon. The Renegade. Renegade, yeah. Paragon and Renegade events. Right. And they were super rare. I think there's like maybe a half a dozen, maybe a mm, dozen No, tops. I'd say there's probably 15 or 20 actually. Yeah. Well, there's probably several options and depending on what you did, some of them right. just weren't available. Yes. And, and so because of the way that the mechanics worked, like they were available if you had enough Paragon and Renegade to activate them. Right. So... Half the time, half of them weren't avail- available to you in any given time. Right. And they, and they would actually give you points in that thing if you use them. So sometimes you wouldn't want to. Exactly. Yep. And so what that entirely boiled down to is just like in a gameplay, you might come across six. Right. So it was super rare. But- and then you would like half the time you're like, what's the symbol on my, oh, I was supposed to push a button. Right. Or you see the symbol and because it's got the trigger thing, you're like, oh, I got to push the button right now. And then you realize that you just did a renegade thing when right. you didn't mean to. But but the other cool thing about it is, but but the other thing about it in that is it's not an instant win or instant lose. Like, no, that's for most, true. I mean, there were a couple, like I think there was one where you could like kick a guy off a balcony and that would just skip the boss fight entirely. But for a lot of them, it was like there was one where... I think it was Renegade where you could like shoot a reactor or, or shoot a shoot a uh, like a like a gas can or something, and it would do damage to two or three of the guys, or it would take out two or three of the guys. You still have a boss fight, um, and you'd still have the whole. It arena. wasn't always boss fight related. Sometimes it was just straight up story. Oh, related. Sometimes it was story related, but I'm saying that. But I'm saying in this in this specific instance, it didn't. It wasn't like doing this skips the boss fight. It was doing this gives you a slight advantage during the boss fight. Where if you didn't do it, eh, you have like three more guys you got to kill. Like. 
you know, as opposed to in, I mean, Resident Evil does the same thing where if you, if you skip, the, if you fail, eh, you might get it, you might get hit, you might lose a few health points. Whereas in Tomb Raider, if you, if you miss them, it was automatic, it's an automatic game over. And even if you have yeah. full health. There, well, there's a lot of games where that happened. There's a Spider-Man a game, I think, where, where it was horrible yeah. now. And that, that I think goes more into bad. that whole deviation from the norm. Cause you know, Spider-Man is supposed to be a hero. Right. And they wrote these comical failure scenes, which made no sense right. for when you missed the mark. And and it's just like it kind of breaks the... Well, I, I honestly think that is actually the biggest problem with quick time events is any any auto fail where you can... I mean, this, this is something we've talked about since like episode three when we we're talking about difficulty. Like things things don't necessarily have to always feel like they are your fault, but they should always feel like you at least have a chance to do something about them. Correct, yeah. And quick time events, off, because often they involve um, changing the gameplay up on you suddenly, and they can be pass and fail, or they, they involve changing the gameplay suddenly, they are pass and fail, and if you fail, a lot of them lead to instant game overs. I think that is three major problems put together. It's, you know, I, I actually think the way Asura's Wrath does it is, is, is really worth looking at, because it has quick time events, but they're scored quick time events. If you fail, doesn't matter. Um, the, the, the scenes still play out exactly the same as they would if you fail, you know, if you fail every single button because they're basically just glorified cutscenes. But it's actually kind of cool because they, they add things to it stylistically. For instance, when he's getting really mad, like this giant X button appears on the screen. And as you press on it, the button shrinks and tricks 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 until he does a special move. Or there's another one where he's like trying to power up and like 50 X buttons appear on the screen. As you press it, mean like one or one after the other, they disappear. You know, it does things to add to it stylistically. And it's awesome because you feel like you're participating in the, in the scene in the same way that you do in, say, God of War. But if you fail, all that happens is your score is you have a lower score. It basically scores like an arcade game. Right. So you still get, you know, you still get to enjoy watching it no matter what happens. And, and that's, that's the part I think most people hate. I, you know, it's sort of like people complain about subtitles in, in foreign language films or an anime. Where it's like I don't want to watch that because I don't want to have to read a book while I'm while I'm watching my movie. Like I can't do two things at once. Mm-hmm. And I think for for some of us, <clears throat> um, I think that's actually um, a major thing. I also will say that I think like I think quick time events. I mean, are there a lot of games that still use quick time events? I mean, Tomb Raider is the last one I can really think of. Um, I mean, Uncharted I guess sort of does. To a lesser um, extent, but yeah. it, but those don't actually feel like quick time events. They feel like you are. They feel like it is a possible story that you then have to follow up in the same way that like Prince of Persia does. In the same way that like yeah, and, and like that's more of a choose your own adventure type right. of situation where it's like, hey, what do you want to do next? Oh, you want to do that? Let's do that. Right. Then. It doesn't. Give or, you or, any- or it's more. Or it's less. It's less like quick time events. Whereas, or it's more like it's an action game. You know how an action game plays, but we're not going to advance. Like the train isn't going to fall until you jump to the next train car. It's it's, it's like triggers. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, in in a lot of ways, I think quick time events are very much a I don't say a relic, but they are very much in my mind tied to the GameCube, PlayStation Two, yeah, early PlayStation Three era. And I think some of that is just like the way mechanics have changed. I actually think part of it is maybe motion controls kind of put an end. I to think that. motion controls helped, but I, I I honestly think rhythm games are what did it. That's true, and I was going to mention rhythm games because mm. they're kind of like uh, uh, quick time events to a beat, <laughs> right? 
But quick time events to a beat are fun, and yes, it allows you are. to do the thing. Like it allows you to play drums, which people enjoy doing. It allows you to sing, which people enjoy doing. It allows you to play guitar, which, like, you and I have had a ton of fun playing guitar here out in the past. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I, I think Dance this, Dance Revolution, and I liked it. Well, Dance Dance Revolution was a was a pre PlayStation Two game, mm-hmm. but um, I don't think it caught on to quite the same extent. But I, I do think that's where at least some of it has, has gone away is because people said, well, hey, people like rock band. Like, let's make more rock band type games. And, right. you know, and a lot of those play not dissimilar to some kinds of... Actually, like, like the, the quick time event that I actually think of the most is the one from Final Fantasy X, mm-hmm. which is where you want to get the, uh, the Jekt Ball. Or if you sail on the ship, there's a quick time event series where you have to, like bounce this ball off a mast a certain number of times by pressing these certain buttons. Right. And if you get it, you unlock a special ability for Blitzball. If you don't do it, you just don't get that ability. And I think you could take two attempts at it, and that's it. Um, and I really like that one. I actually find it really fun. I've never failed it. But I could see how people who who did fail it would probably be really ticked. But also, that one actually kind of plays out like a rhythm game because it's the ball hits, you press the button. The ball hits the mast, you press... like. It, it has a, a definite rhythm to it. And that's, that that one to me is the one that sort of feels like it got kicked into the rhythm game craze. Right. That's why actually, I can sort of draw that line too. Actually, there's a line of games that uh, kind of sort of have a bit of a quick time event, or mm. at least not all of them, but it's be- definitely been a factor in the combat. Mm. Um, Paper Mario. Well, yeah. Okay. That was the other one I was thinking of. Because like when you... It, 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 it plays like an RPG for the most part, but when you're actually in combat, if you press A at the right time defending, mm-hmm. you can negate damage. I'm not sure. You I... press B at the right time, and it's even more narrow window, and you can do a counter. Right. And then at the same time, especially in, in like a certain range of the GameCube ones, yeah. when you were attacking, if you timed properly, you'd get a bonus to get extra cheer from the crowd, right. which would allow you to or, or power some... up your star Power. Or, or or one of them, uh, Thousand year, year Door had a couple where... That was the one I was thinking of, yeah. If, if, if you jumped on one Koopa, if you pressed the A button at the right time, you could jump on the next one and keep going. Yeah. And you do chains. I actually don't think of that as much as a quick time event thing because um, that actually first, that concept at least, first showed up in the PlayStation 1 game Legend of Dragoon. Okay. Um, And I was thinking about this too because I, I was thinking about the Paper Mario thing. And to me, that doesn't feel like a... It definitely feels like a rhythm game, but it doesn't feel like a quick time event. And 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 and, and this is actually why. And here, here in my mind is, is is the distinction between the two, is that in my mind a quick time event is based on partially is based on surprise and partially is based on responding to a cue. Responding to a cue, where you know you always know like. There's a little bit of surprise in the Paper Mario games because you don't necessarily know exactly when they're going to attack. You got to figure out the timing window, but you always know what button you need to press, mm. and you always know, and you're always looking for a specific cue. Whereas in, say, Resident Evil, it's oh, we're we're paddling down this river, and all of a sudden this tree comes out of the way, and you got to go duck by pressing the, the left and right triggers, or um, you're fighting this monster, and if you press the X button, you'll stab him in the back, and he'll. You'll pull this parasite out of him, and then he'll die. And if you don't do that, he won't. And it's random buttons. You don't know what the buttons are going to be in advance. Sometimes they change between playthroughs specifically to make it more difficult. Mm-hmm. And I think in my mind, that's the big distinction is there, the timing element has happened. There, there, there are timing elements in a lot of games that aren't quick time events. 
But the right. QuickTime event to me is the the surprise and the randomness is definitely part of the QuickTime event. Because, for example, there's another game that I can think of that has something similar to the Mario effect, which is uh, Metal Gear Solid 4. There's this point where, small spoiler alert, you have to crawl through this tunnel that slowly kills you. And you are struggling, like you are tapping the two buttons to drag yourself through it. And it's difficult, but it's not really a quick time event. It's just you having to do this really difficult, like just drag yourself through this thing. That's actually a callback to the first game, but that's not as important. Right. Um, but it's not, I don't think of it as a quick time event because it's just this, this slog of button, 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 button. Um, and, it, and it's representational. It's representational of the pain that the character is feeling. But I don't think of it as a quick time fit. Right. Okay. And I think for me that the Legend of Dragoon thing and the um, uh, the, the the Paper Mario thing fall into that. Although I guess that sort of negates the um, that sort of negates the rhythm game argument. But at the same time, I'm not sure it does because those still are. I mean, those at least have it follow follow a pattern, follow a sensible pattern, but they do also change up on you. Mm. I think another really good series that that is sort of in between the rhythm game and quick time events are the uh, Elite Beat Agent games or the uh, Osu Tatake Owendon games right, in Japan, okay. which are they're based on like drawing shapes on the DS to a rhythm. Oh, okay. Or uh, rhythm rhythm heaven for the All Wii. Right. Yeah, yeah. Isn't there like a a version of that um, for like uh, VR? Where oh, there might you be. have shapes moving and you have to actually like repeat patterns to catch the shapes, sort of or like that. Or yeah. um, I was gonna say even like Child of Eden, but Child of Eden is, is more of a, is definitely a shooter, but that kind of idea. I, I think I, <clears throat> I'm thinking of like I've also seen it in a a mouse type game where you've got the screen and you've got like circles, yeah, and you have to drag the the circles to different points. And like, it's again, like that, yeah, like that. So I I mean yeah, there's a lot of different like variations on the same mechanic, though, right? Depending on Despite the fact that some of them might be a little more quick time event ish and more rhythm mm. game ish, they all kind of touch on the same thing. Um, so, well, uh, we might have touched on uh, on this, but um, actually, we did touch on that part. So we'll just okay, never mind that. Uh, I do sort of agree with your 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 point in the notes, though. That um, you know, does it fail because dispersing the button mash sessions between events breaks up the story too much? I think it does, but I think not necessarily that because it breaks up the story too much, so much as because it breaks up the gameplay too much. I, I mean, aside from the subtitles aspect, like I actually think the problem is that it disperses the gameplay too much. It's that because okay. I was going to say is is part of the problem also because um, it's difficult to tell a story already in a video game, and it makes that harder. I mean, I, I think that sort of ties into what I was saying about subtitles. Like, I think it distracts a certain group of people, um, and I, I definitely think that. I mean, I think that actually, to some extent, I think that's why a lot of PS2 and, and GameCube era games did that, is they didn't feel very strongly about their their stories. Right. Um, and they definitely didn't feel strongly about their cutscenes. So this was a good way to be like, well, our cutscenes don't look super great, and our stories are kind of whack. So, so let's do something to make them exciting. Well, or to distract people from it. Right. Right. And, I mean, you know, let's be honest, like, God of War... It is kind of fun to play as a button masher, but the storyline is pretty dumb. Um, well, from what I've I've been told, uh, the first one was the best one story. It was, um, and and I will point out that as as the games went on, the the quick time events like 
as the story got worse, the quick time events got bigger and more bombastic and more insane to the point that you're like pulling eyes out of people's heads and stuff. Like, so uh, I guess that's that's the thing is is that uh, again, that's what I say. It I was, think it's a distraction. It was it was um, they kind of lost track of what was actually important in game. Just like uh, graphics tend to get more and more carried away as we advance because they forgot that it's not about the the the, the special details like bloom and extra grit in video games and more about just having a good-looking game. I, I feel that saying they lost track of what is important is the wrong way of phrasing it. I think it was they knew that they didn't have the skill to do it and that some people still wanted it, so hiding it behind... Th- like, they knew, like, they know that God of War is the equivalent of a Michael Bay movie. Right. So let's make it as extreme as a Michael Bay movie. Like, you don't go to Michael Bay... You, like, you're not going to Michael Bay expecting Schindler's List. You're not going to Transformers 3 expecting Schindler's List. But you are going for a fun time with a lot of excitement and explosions. And that's what God of War is. It's a fun time with a lot of excitement and explosions. But sure, give some people something to distract them during the during the cutscenes, which are stupid because, I mean, it's basically about the fact that some guy got mad because he killed his wife and kids and now is going to go murder all of the gods in Olympus. Like, it's a dumb plot. With yeah. a character that's not particularly likable at all. Um, no. And somehow they managed to make, what, three, four games out of those? Three main games and two side games. Ugh. And and the first one is actually kind of good, because there is a redemptive arc at the end of it. But, yeah, I think that's what it was. And then they went that, back to do prequels. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, that was a... Well, not even prequels. I think they did, like, direct sequels. And I, they kind of, like, threw them out. I'm not sure where God of War 2 and 3 are, fall in that timeline. But, yeah, like, the first one actually did end with him... Basically, he did a Hercules. Um, and, and redeemed himself. Like, that's what the whole thing was about. And died doing it. And then right. he goes back to murdering Right, and God he goes back later. to murdering people. And, like, yeah, like, like they threw out a lot of that, and, and I think that's why they turned off the cutscenes, because they're like, well, yeah, this is stupid, it doesn't make any sense, so we're just going to make it bloody and bombastic and crazy. But fine, a lot of people like those games. I'm not... Like, this goes back to, to, to the thing you and I say, which is, you know, designers should be allowed to make the games they want to make. I have no issue with that. Mm-hmm. Um... But I think it's also worth pointing out and, and, and understanding why they do some of these things. And I think in this case, it is very much a, we're going to do this because, and, and they're right. Like, God of War doesn't need, God of War doesn't need to be, a, you know, a deep meditation on the meaning of humanity. No. Like, it just, it doesn't need that. No. All right. So let's uh, move on. So, uh... so my thing, so my, so my argument is that the way you make them work is... You make a is is similar to what we've been talking about. That you, they work QTEs work best when they make a player a participant in something that would other be otherwise be left to a cutscene. Um, so my my two solutions are either make the events a little more telegraphed and make the uh, and, and make them resolve after the button press rather than during the button press. And then make the symbology a part of the story itself, like a, like a Star's Wrath does. Like Oh, you know what that or, or 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 Resident Evil does it a little bit. Make it make it feel instinctual. What was that? That it was a PS3 exclusive game, Heavy Rain. Oh yes, Heavy Rain. Yeah, that had a lot of quick time events. I mean, yeah. Heavy Rain is almost so, solely quick time. And events. and I think and people hated that game, but well, yeah, a lot of people hated that game. But it was it was um, it was trying to do a lot. I of that. don't think the quick time events were the big hindrance in that game. I I think for a lot of people it was. Um, yeah. Well, in, a lot of people also didn't like his previous game, though, um, Indigo Prophecy or Fahrenheit. Uh, okay. 
Um, of course, that one they also didn't like because it involved zombie sex and all sorts of weird stuff. Well, it was obvious that this guy had some pretty he has some strange issues. ideas. I mean, yeah. the, it, it is a bleak, dark, you know, it is a game that I've considered playing several times because I'm really fascinated by it and also have no real desire to play because it is a cross between... You know, a thriller and a horror movie. Um, I mm-hmm. I know I know the parts that happen in it. There are things in there I do not want to see, but would kind of like to play because I think they are the kind of things that are that really heavy player punch. Mm-hmm. Except for the fact that I have no desire to see them for the same reason I don't necessarily want to go watch, you know, a Saw movie or any really really heavy, you know, dark horror movie. Yeah. Um. You know, like the, I know there was a part where somebody saws their own has to saw their own finger off. Mm, didn't he have to shoot it off mm, or cut it off? He has to cut it off with, yeah. a, with a knife. But yeah. I mean, either way, he has to. He has to. He has to remove. Somebody has to remove their own finger, and that is that is certainly a question I have asked myself before if I could do, and it would be really interesting to try playing through it. But I don't really want to have to see it happen. No. Um, in the same way that I hope I never have to actually make that choice. Right. Um, but I, I think there are. I think that game asks <clears throat> some interesting questions. And, and that is actually sort of what I mean when I say that I think that making it's weird because the, their their first game, his first game, uh, Indigo Prophecy or Fahrenheit in Europe, doesn't follow that. There's a lot of things where it's like press the triangle button three times to mop floors, um, <clears throat> but in Heavy Rain it does do a lot of that. It's like push down to put something on a table, swipe, you know, hit left, hit right to do uh, various things. And I think there is a lot more of that symbology, and I think that actually would work. Make it feel. Like it shouldn't be a hundred percent telegraphed, especially in something like a like a horror game, where idiot part of it is the surprise. But at least make it feel natural in a way and that that's one thing I noticed from what I saw in Heavy Rain was that the um, a lot of the event like instructions, mm. the the cues were kind of descriptive in yes. their appearance, their placement, how they show up. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It was fairly well done in that regard. Yeah, I, I would I would actually say that. Um, I think I think there are parts of the Resident Evil Four that do, like the one that always I always remember is the press the shoulder buttons to duck your head because that just feels like mm-hmm. of course it's it's the I mean it's not technically it's the back of the controller but in my mind it's the top of the controller and oh you're pulling the top of the controller you're pulling your two shoulders down to to represent ducking like that just seems like such a natural yeah sort of symbol for that um, but on the other hand you only have so many buttons on a controller. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will, I will also say that I have played both the GameCube and the PS2 version of Resident Evil 4, and the GameCube version is significantly easier, and part of that's just the controller. Right. Um, and I think that's true of the of the, uh, the, the quick downloads as well. They feel more natural on the GameCube because they were made for that, designed for that controller. Right. And that controller <clears throat> was, um, the buttons, the configuration of the layout wasn't too homogenous. Yes. So you could kind of do more with mm-hmm. how they were set up. There was, there was also an, an interesting game that I don't quite think the quick time events work, but they, they sort of are this interesting balance between this and actual quick time events. So there's this game called soccer wars, something or other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the soccer wars anime quite a Well, I don't, I don't say, won't say quite a bit. I kind of like the soccer wars anime, but I really like this game. It's a really interesting combination of uh, dating sim between Tactical combat. So there's tactical uh, RPG that plays out kind of like Final Fantasy Tactics. And between that, each day is a 
Um, it's like a, it's sort of like a dating sim visual novel type thing. But every so often you will come across people who want you to like do things for them. And you do that by doing these sort of quick time eventy things right. of you got to move the, the joysticks in circles or you got to move them towards each other and up and down and left and right to fill up this little bar. So it's semi-predictable because like they're surprising you with what specific buttons you're going to do. But you know, oh, if I do this, I'm going to have to fill this bar. I'm going to have 10 seconds to do it. And, right. you know, it gets harder. And it's, again, not the pass-fail thing because if you, you know, if you don't fill the bar completely but you do sort of halfway up, like, like it's usually three or four reactions. Um, and, and, it's, and it's usually two, like, there's, like, five characters and whoever likes you the most, you get bonuses with when you're fighting next to them or whatever or, or from the two you're fighting closest to or whatever. Um, so there is an advantage to doing it. But also sometimes failing it is also fun because interesting story things will play out from that right. and it will change the story. Like, I think that's a great way to do it is if you fail – it's not that you get damaged. It's not that you get hurt. It's that a different you get on a different story track. Okay. Um, and I think I think Soccer Wars handles it really well. But it is the only game that I've ever seen do something like that. And I mean, it was a PlayStation Two game that came out after the PlayStation Three had already come out. So I don't know that anybody has played this game. Hmm. Um, and I think there are several really clever things that you could take away from it. Uh, what is I don't actually remember what it was. Uh, Soccer Wars, My Heart Something or Other. My Heart Will Go On, maybe. Right. Um, so, yeah, definitely definitely worth sort of looking into if, if you haven't played it. I'm going to look that up while, while you talk for a second. Actually, I was looking that up because you were okay. talking. Okay, well, you look it up then. Um, but So that was one thing. But I, I will say, so I actually did have at least one stab at a pitch. Okay. So everybody's seen, I assume at this point, everybody has seen Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah. So there's the scene at the end of Austin Powers where they do this stupid gag where, and I think it's actually probably one of the funnier scenes in the movie because I don't think Austin Powers is a particularly funny movie. Not particularly, no. But there's the scene where the two of them at the end are in this hotel room and they're both naked. And as they walk by, they keep holding up various things to sort of hide, you know, hide the, hide the parts that need to be censored. And okay. I think it would be really funny to do a comedy action game where you were playing as a character who just, who, who was in a shower, his girlfriend got, who was in the shower, his girlfriend got kidnapped, and now you have to chase after and fight her, but you're not playing as the person doing the combat, you're playing as the person who has to keep moving things in front of the the guy to make sure that pe- that, that the the scene isn't, uh, that, that the game doesn't cause problems. I, mm, okay. <laughs> So so here so here's why I think this would actually work. I mean, a obviously the the actual gag is the fact that the guy's wearing a towel the whole time. So that's why it actually works. Okay. I mean, so that, that that's step one is that he's not actually naked. That's that that makes it even funnier. Um, but so like it's it's going to be somewhat predictable because you know you're going to have a vague idea of where the guy's going to be going. But at the same time, it's like, oh, well, I don't necessarily know what button I'm going to need to throw in front of him. I don't necessarily, you know, there, there might be multiple options. I mean, one, one way to do it to make it more interesting is I think you could have like, all right, he's fighting over here. So, boop, 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 boop. you know, so obviously once he's behind this area, you're probably safe for a little bit. Like maybe it would be like a button and then a, like a joystick move to sort of keep it around, around the general area or something like, oh, I shouldn't, I got to knock over this building so that like the rubble, like he's got rubble to fight behind for two or three minutes and then I'm good for, for a couple of minutes. Um, <clears throat> but then I think that like, like there's a couple, like you might get scored on what's the funniest option to use to, to censor him at that moment um, mm-hmm. or something like that. 
I, I actually started thinking about this because I was listening to a podcast where they started talking about Eastern Promises, uh, which is a movie where two two naked men have a fight in a Turkish-style bath um, and is definitely very, very R-rated movie um, with, with full back nudity. So I was thinking it would be really interesting to do it where you were censoring that from behind. But then I said, this would be way funnier. So, hmm. Well, I think it would probably make a mm, make for a uh, interesting mobile game. Yeah, maybe maybe like where you have stickers. Oh, that might work. And and you have to drop stickers, and you have to you have so many stickers. I'm not they sure have that so quite counts coverage. as a, I'm not sure that quite counts as a quick time event if it's on a tablet. But maybe well, it would. Maybe maybe not. But yeah, yeah I, can see, I see I can see where you're going with that. Because that way there, it'd be, you know, kind of interesting. It might be just like, uh, I don't know, hide the radish. And like during the entire scene, they're like carrying radishes and handing them off. And oh, you got to cover the, cover the radish the entire time. Oh, that, okay. That's true. You can, you can sort of change what, what happens in each scene. Or or like maybe, or, or if we're, we're going to carry on with the, the fighting game, like so maybe the first scene, the first scene he runs out of the shower and the second scene he gets a chainsaw. So you have to hide him every time he's about to swipe somebody with a chainsaw so that you don't yeah. get any blood. So it it could just be like um, we could call it something like frantic censorship. I I want to call it the raid three because the raid the raid is already such a bizarre movie. What's the raid? It's it's a it's a movie about it's basically a movie about a SWAT team doing martial arts through an entire apartment complex. No. Um, okay. That's I, just weird. It's it's a weird movie. Um, it's it's a very popular movie too. I, I would like to see it, but I've not seen it yet. Mm. Uh, yeah. Also, we, a very we, we'd have movie. to you know get get. Um, permission to use their name. Well, I mean, we're, 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 we're considering we're not designing any of these these games. I feel like pretend calling it naming it after something that exists is not necessarily the worst thing we could do. Okay. I okay. mean, it's better than calling it Eastern Promises too. No. Okay. Western well, Promises. We could do that. <laughs> Western. Actually, that would be much more fitting considering the description of the other game. That's true. Okay. Well, that's we have that one. That's uh yeah. Um I honestly couldn't think of a good pitch for a quick time event. Game. I think I think the problem with this is it's not so much that we want a quick time event game, it's that we want quick time events that work. Yeah, and it's more discussing the mechanic and seeing what does and does not work. And I guess we could just uh, sum this up by recapping what what we do like. Uh a game like Dragon's Lair where uh Theming is kind of important. The mm-hmm. styling is kind of important. And the humorousness of failure yes. really helps make that work. So that's an important factor. Um, otherwise, making sure that the, the quick time events are relevant and provide the correct feeling yes. when they're enacted. That was something else that we decided yeah. was absolutely crucial. If you don't carry that out in your game, it's not going to succeed. I agree. Um, prevalency. And consistency, I think, mm-hmm. are really important. If you've got a game like Mass Effect where it happens so rarely, might as well just leave it out because there's no point. As- See, I, I, I actually feel like Mass Effect is one of the few where I like it because of that, because it is very much a almost a joke. Yeah, I don't think it's something that should be joked about in that game. I mean, it could have worked, but it's too much of a serious game for that. Maybe. That because Mass Effect to me is not not a funny game. It's not a game that you it, should it, have it, a joke in it. it well, I, I think, and this is something I think we will definitely have to talk about in another episode because this is it, it is too large for one single thing. But I think that I mean most serious films have at least a few light moments in them because oh, yeah. at some point you need a little. Like I think but, it serves really good as a tension not breaker. That type of 
Not yeah. that type of humor. Not the type of humor that people actually have to work to to to, to de- determine. True. So, see, I don't think it's it's haha funny so much as sort of a, a light a lighter moment in a fairly serious game. What you mean as as it was used to in, interject humor by having scenes I mean, that would happen if you had the right level of paragon or yeah. I mean, like I, I don't think it's funny, but I think you know, kicking a guy off a of scaffolding is. Oh, that happened. All right, you know, it, it's surprising. That's true, but I again, I don't think we needed a quick time event for that to happen. Probably not. And um, it, it consistency out of the way. Consistency, I think, was was is also important. For instance, in a lot of the games that you were citing, mm. um, when it happened was consistent, like right. in specific boss fights, you know that there will probably be a quick time event to I don't know carry on the fight. Like you're talking about fighting the Hydra in God of right. War. Um, to progress to the next level, you actually have to successfully plant a hydra head onto a mass. And, and, and I will also say that going along with consistency, it should feel like something you could not do in the rest of the game. And actually, in the, it's, it's a problem with cutscenes in general, but quick time event cutscenes especially should feel like things you can't just, the character shouldn't just be able to do as part of the game. Well, yeah, uh, I think that was part of the tone yes. aspect okay. of that. Um so I think those things are, are crucial. Those are those are our takeaways from this. I, I will I will say one other since I brought up uh, Tomb Raider a couple of times now. Um, the button prompts should be correct to what they actually want you to press. Right. Uh, they, the game needs to actually work. There was a button prompt in the Tomb Raider game that wouldn't that kept showing you the wrong button prompt. They wanted you to press a certain button, and it was not the button that they actually put on the screen. And so I died about six times of that spot. Huh. And that's that's not okay. If you if, no. if you especially if it is a pass fail, um, you know if it's you take a little and, bit of damage, it's not a huge deal. Especially if it's one of those situations where maybe they're trying to give you the impression, and this is definitely a don't try this. But maybe they're trying to give you the impression that your reflex action was the fir- was the button prompt, and you right. should you were supposed to resist the urge to I don't know put your hands to your face instead of catching the wall. Right. Something like that perhaps would be a bad idea because. While we understand as as humans that there are times when you have to fight the urge to to let go when you're hanging off right. when someone steps on your fingers, um, that doesn't necessarily translate well into well, a, a different. This mechanic. wasn't even that. This was just they they had put the wrong button in. It oh, was they well, they had put a down button. That, and you were supposed to press that. That kind of just falls in the category of the category of troubleshoot your game. Well, and yes. make sure it's not broken. Yes, or or actually no, that wasn't it. It was that all the other. It was if you plugged a controller in, all the others. Uh, masked over to the controller, and that one did not. For whatever it was a reason. keyboard B instead of the B button on right. the controller. Yeah, yes, that's still falls in the ca- right. category of game. troubleshoot your game. Please. And, and I'm just going to point out, since we're uh, wrapping up, that the game that I was trying to remember is uh, Sakura Wars. Uh, so long, my love. So long, was, so long. There, my there was podcast. a sequel to that that I believe was actually uh, did actually have a song title, but I can't remember what that is. Okay, I think that's good though. We have. Uh, discussed quick time events yes uh so we're gonna cut you over to a cutscene. make sure you press the right buttons or you will not make it to the mouthwash yes uh, what you're gonna want to press is the uh skip forward uh two 15 second things on your ipad or just you know don't push the button because there is no fail to this quick time event that's true you're just gonna you it will just let you skip the song all right
back to the mouthwash. Mouthwash! Where we spit fiery hot truths like arrows from the bow of Lady Justice herself, along with just a hint of permadeath. Permadeath. I have to say, that is the one, that is probably my favorite part of the Roguelike Radio podcast, is they have the best tagline. Do they? It's the procedurally procedurally generated podcast where all of the participants eventually die. That must be new. I'm still in 2013, I think. Well, at some point he added it. I have not listened. To, I have, actually I haven't listened to all of their episodes. But uh, I like I, it, it is the most accurate tagline you will ever come up with. Yeah, it is very it accurate. It's procedurally generated and <clears throat> all of the participants will eventually die. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to uh, Roguelike Radio before we start. Uh, I've been listening to them for a while. I've been going through their backlog. And while they are a little dry, they always have some really good information. And they talk a lot with uh, the developers of the roguelikes that are I like big. some of those. I find some of them, it really depends on the developer. Some of them definitely overtalk some of their stuff. Some of them are really fascinating. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I've definitely had a few where I'm just like, that's not why you did that at all. <laughs> yes. You are well, totally a liar. You were not reading Proust and suddenly decided that you had to find a way to apply that to roguelikes. Hey, that sounds like a good idea. Maybe we should try that. Don't read Proust. <laughs> I don't know. I'd play a Nietzschean roguelike, perhaps. Nietzschean? Okay. Actually, I guess most roguelikes already are Nietzschean, but that's that's neither How about uh, Freudian? No. 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 No, absolutely not. No. Just no. Freud is Freud is a creep. Freud is a creep. Yeah. Anyway, so we were talking about, um, so our topic of this week. Oh, have we actually talked about our topic yet? Uh, so this week we're talking about roguelikes. Um, it's actually something we talked about a little bit back in episode two when we had Trevor on, but yes. we didn't really get to dive too much into sort of the deeper aspects of roguelikes. It was a little bit more talking about the sort of the surface level of what a roguelike is. Yes. And also I know that we, I've currently set it up so that our episodes only keep the most recent 20 which means that episode is probably going to fall off the feed here pretty soon. At some point, I'll tinker with it so that we can keep more episodes. But for now, it seems like 20 is probably enough. Fall for off the people. feed? What do you mean? Um, it, only, it only surfaces the, the most recent 20 episodes unless I tinker with the oh, feed. Oh, okay. Um, well, I mean, technically... They only, sh- only the first 20 show up on the, the store. Okay, yeah. Uh, those the, Everything else is still, I'm going to put this out now, be on our main site. Yeah, so you can still download it on the site. So you just can't get it off the RSS feed. Yeah. Um, but that's, I mean, you know, most people don't, most people listen to it through some various podcasting app. So, you know, if, if you haven't listened to episode two, you could get it on our site, but otherwise, you know, that one's probably going to be going away at least for, for, for a little while. So I figured it might be worth talking about, you know, a little bit more in depth what roguelikes are. I know we talk about roguelikes quite a bit here anyway, so it might be good to sort of just do an overview of some of our roguelikes, what we like about roguelikes. And I'm going to say it. I really hate the term roguelike. Yeah, well, if anything has come clear in this podcast, it is your distaste for inaccurate or inappropriate terminology. Partially that, but also just partially I don't like I don't like defining a genre by a example. By by an example. Well, I mean Same with Metroidvania. I mean, that's the thing about roguelike is in that case, it was that somebody made a game and then everything else came from that game. <laughs> So while it's inaccurate these days because the roguelike genre has blown up so mm. enormously, it's not it's it is kind of a funny exception in my opinion just because it's been so commonly referred to that it's just like uh Kleenex. Sure. It's not an accurate to call tissues But I mean we've Kleenex, also but, but we've also I mean we've also called it Metroidvania for 15 years now. That is true. And um, now we call it um Subway game. Subway, Subway games. RPG. 
Subway RPG. Yes. Yeah. Or a subway action game. Maybe. Well, we do. We do. We haven't. Um, but, but I mean, we got to get that trend rolling. But but also, I mean, you know, we talked about walking simulators or narr- narrative, calling them narrative pathing game. Yeah. Um, I, I actually do have, I, I'm not sure it's a great option, but I actually did have a, um, an idea for a term, which is, uh, procedural permadeath games because i feel like that's actually the part that most people think of when they think of roguelikes is procedural generation well no, no pr- uh, procedural permadeath not procedural generation procedural permadeath games no no i, well, oh, sorry, I was gonna say it, it because it consists of procedurally generated content and permadeath correct I, are you sure that procedural generation is like a major tenant of roguelikes in my i'm not sure well so let's let's start by talking about something that um, the that is called the Berlin interpretation of roguelikes. Okay, um, and I, I actually have this up. Uh, I pulled this off Rogue Basin. Uh, so back in two thousand eight, I believe uh, a bunch of roguelike developers. Uh, I think Darren Gray was one of them. I think there were a few others who are every year. There is a, every year or every two years. I forget exactly. There is a roguelike conference where a lot of the major developers sort of get together and there's all there's like 20 or 30 of them in in the major roguelike community there are not many of them um because there are not that many super super well-known roguelike games mm-hmm. um that, that is becoming more they're becoming more common especially with things like the 70 rl 70 roguelike competition but there's still not a huge number in that community and they got together in i think it was berlin college i'm not exactly sure uh but anyway the international roguelike development conference 2008 and they, they basically sat down and said, what makes a roguelike a roguelike? And they're, they, they broke it down basically into two groups, the high yep. value and the low value. Uh, actually, Darren Gray has a really good blog post from a couple of years ago saying why he thinks that the, the Berlin interpretation is outdated. And I agree with him to some extent. But basically, he says that or, or they say that uh, random environment generation, which would be procedural generation, would be, would be what we would call that nowadays, uh, permadeath. Yep. Turn-based, grid-based, non-modal, which means that they that everything takes place in the same way. Um, so you know, movement and actions and everything all would be would be handled in the same sort of process type thing, such as in in dungeon crawl, moving and eating and doing an action are all the same, like take place within the same quote-unquote turn. They all take one t- turn. Okay. Um. Complexity, <clears throat> yep. meaning basically that there are multiple solutions to any uh, thing you want to do. Uh, resource management, uh, hack and slash, meaning killing a bunch of enemies, uh, and exploration and discovery. Those are all, um, what's the term, high value factors. So basically, the more of those there are, the more likely it is to be, the more rogue-like it is. The more like rogue it is, let's say. So far, um, so good. And then they had a bunch of low value factors, such as uh, a single player character or one player character. Uh, monsters behave similarly to monster uh, to to players, um, okay. meaning they they behave the same way. They follow the same rules. Uh, tactical challenge, meaning you have to learn about the game's tactics before you can make progress. Uh, ASCII display, uh, dungeons, and having numbers. Okay, those are all lower value factors. And I honestly think that. So my problem, in a lot of ways, my problem with the Berlin definition is my same as my problem with Metroidvania, or is the same as my problem last last episode when I said why it bothers me why people talk about Metroidvanias, which is I feel that the Berlin de- definition is very exclusionary, um, mm-hmm. in the same way that I think a lot of those are, which is 
I think that is, let's say, I think that the Berlin definition might be a good, um, goal to strive for, let's say, but I don't think it should be the hard and fast definition. Right. Um, and I think, and this is, and this is, was, was Darren Gray's point is, uh, who is, who is the person who runs roguelike radio, I should point out. Yes. Um, and has done a lot of things in the roguelike community, um, is that the problem is that a lot of people try to use that definition as a hammer or as a wedge rather than as a yardstick, let's say. Right. Um, so, yeah. so trying to say this, this doesn't have this and therefore is not a roguelike when it really would be more appropriate to say, Oh, well, this has a bunch of these factors. So if I like roguelikes, I would probably like this game. Yeah. And, and that's how it should be. I think these type of definitions should be used. Yeah. It is a, it is a failing, I think, in the community, the gaming community right mm-hmm. now that we have, we have this problem of using um, classification to exclude. Yes, we, we 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 like to make buckets. Yeah, and we yes. stuff things in buckets, and then we throw away the buckets, and then we're like, "Where was that bucket?" And right. I've lost my bucket. And 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 I think I think really it's much more appropriate to say that we should be using things as yardsticks. Of well, hey, this is eighty percent of the things I like in it. Maybe I'll give this a shot. And and I think some of that, like if we're if we're being honest, some of that is because so many games come out. That at some point you kind of have to be able to quickly say, oh, this is a game I'm going to be interested in. This is a game I'm not going to be interested in because so many and, and gaming is a very expensive hobby that being able to say, oh, well, I can dismiss these, this $120 worth of games that's coming out this month because none of them look interesting to me. Okay. Well, I think, I think actually, I don't think in my opinion that Mm -hmm. this eliminates the Berlin interpretation of a roguelike. I think we should leave a roguelike as it is, as a measuring stick, because it's not—it's not so much the classification oh, 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 that's oh, the I'm, problem. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not saying that we should completely discount the, the the Berlin interpretation. I'm saying that I think we have moved beyond the Berlin interpretation. Uh, well, I think I think the thing there is maybe that should just require a new classification, right? Because there are, and I think it should be better than just a roguelike, like because that's so bad. Well, well, that, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, I I think the the Berlin interpretation is very good for. What are we talking about when we are talking about a traditional classic game that is like Rogue? So yes, like a rogue, like Rogue, NetHack, Angband, Adam, yeah, those games. I think right. I think using that this this as a bucket to put those in makes perfect sense. I'm saying that for the the sort of broader genre as a whole, I think maybe calling it something like a procedural permadeath game might be a little closer mm. to what we're getting at. Like I'm procedural. I, I think that the permadeath part. Well, 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 well for, we'll for example, that. I don't th- like. I don't think roguelites or roguelike likes, as some people like to call them. I don't think most of those should be. We should be classifying. Like I don't think Spelunky is. Well, like like here's the sort that sort of gut thing that I'm talking about. Like when we're talking about this kind of game, and and I think you and I are you and I are on the same page in yeah. this. You know, I don't think Spelunky would fall into this. I don't think Rogue Legacy would fall into this. I don't think um, it wouldn't fall under a rogue like like or a rogue light. Well, it's, it, it, no, those are rogue lights, but I'm saying they wouldn't fall into the genre that you and I are thinking about right now. Oh, okay. I'm saying those are definitely rogue like likes. Like they have rogue like elements in them. Um, like Spelunky has the procedural generation, has the permadeath, it has the repeating. Uh, Binding of Isaac being another one. But for example, like I think. FTL, I think Tales of Majael, I think um, uh, Morphblade, I think Brolio. Those are games that I think would fall into this sort of second level of roguelikes, mm-hmm. but aren't necessarily strict 
Berlinian roguelikes. You know, uh-huh. they still have the procedural generation. They still are right. turn-based. They, they have still a have the much lesser amount of the Berlin. Right. They don't take. They don't tend to take place in dungeons. Although Tales of Magiel does, but they don't. They don't take place in dungeons as much. They, they are more expansive. They have white. It's it's almost like pulling other elements of video games back into the roguelike community. Whereas mm-hmm. something like, say, Spelunky and Rogue Legacy is taking things from roguelikes and putting them into video games. I think things like FTL, uh, Invisible Ink, um, Tales of Majael are taking things from video games and putting them back into the roguelike community. Correct. Um, and th- those are the ones that, that I sort of think are, are really interesting and well, they may not be strict roguelikes. Those are the ones that I think we should find perhaps a new a new genre term for, so that we can still call them something because they are still roguelike, but they're not strict roguelikes. They're not Berlinian yeah. roguelikes. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that 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 doesn't make sense, and I think the category of rogue roguelike, like as we're mm. establishing, doesn't quite cover it right because no. it's kind of it's just kind of like saying it's it's not quite a roguelike without actually defining the genre well, I, I like well. I like roguelite because in my mind that is the games like your Binding of Isaacs they yeah. are they are arcadey or other games that happen to have some roguelike elements in them. Main, yeah. mainly the permadeath and procedural generation like those are the two but I think I think that there's stuff that wouldn't necessarily fall mm. into the roguelite category that also doesn't go straight into roguelike either like what um well I I honestly think that um FTL, I wouldn't call that a rogue light either. It's not- see, I, I, I think I think FTL is a straight up roguelike. It is not a again not a Berlinian roguelike, but a straight up. Roguelike. Yeah, but it doesn't fall under that idea that arcadey roguelike. No, I, I I think it is that second. I think I it think is we right need a middle. Venn diagram. Right. I think that's what we need. We need one of those. Yes. Um. But so 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 let's basically carve it into two sections. If you mm-hmm. if if it is a game that has. That is not. Let, let's let's start by just saying, for basic purposes, old school roguelikes. Your mm-hmm. net hacks, your dungeon crawls, your adoms are over here. Berlinian. We're just going to call them Berlinian because and, and then and then the games that have non roguelike parts in them that have arcade stuff. Let's call you know Binding of Isaac, Spelunky. Let's call those lights. So right. we're talking about the middle the middle bucket, which I say is Tales of Magel, FTL, Road Not Taken. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, desktop dungeons, I think might fall into desktop that dungeons. Yeah. I think, I think those are, those are the ones that I really think are doing some interesting. And, and, and I think FTL falls into those because it's turn-based. Mm-hmm. Um, or it is possible. So it is, it is doing different things with time. Yeah. Um, it is very much a, it is very much about risk versus reward, which I think is a major aspect of, of, mm-hmm. of a roguelike. Uh, it's not, it's not modal. Uh, it kind of is though. Because in a way that you're not well, no, it's it's not. But that's why I'm saying it's not really. A, yeah, a no, I'm not saying. Um, but 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 what it? So I think we should, we can actually boil it down further. I'm even going to say we could boil it down further than the Berlinian, which is basically in my mind. There's sort of five aspects to all of these roguelikes, whether they be Berlinian or or this sort of second tier, which is mm-hmm. risk versus reward. Yep. Optimization through multiple playthroughs. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe you should be writing this down. Well, you can write that if you want. Uh, procedural generation. Um, mul- multiple ways to approach a situation and inventory. Or or, or ran- random generation of items. So let's go over those again. Okay. Um, risk versus reward. 
Okay. Optimization through multiple playthroughs of that sort of algorithmic style that we were talking about a couple episodes ago. Okay. Um, procedural generation. Mm-hmm. Shoot, what was the fourth one I said? Uh, random random inventory items. Uh, you mean random random items? Random items. Sorry. Um, right, random item. Okay. And um, shoot, what did I say for the other one? Uh, I don't know. You 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 go ahead. Uh, let's see here. Play through procedures or random item. And I think the other thing that those all had was a single player. Mm, that's true. Cause, uh, well, I don't know. There are, there are some that I have played that do not. Well, uh, it depends. Like, uh, you would think that um, FTL, because it, it's got multiple crewmen, but uh, it was argued, actually, on Roguelike Radio, because I just heard this one recently, that actually you're playing the ship, not the people in it. That's true. So. That, that That's actually true. Um, I can see that. Oh, um. I was actually going to say, and, and and I think in my mind the other one is is complexity, complexity. Um, of, of mo- mo- multiple solutions to a problem. Um, I mean, in my mind, those are the five basic, like, and and, and most of those still fall into that sort of Three. Berlin interpretation. But I think they are both. Am I taking out single player? No, go ahead. I I, I think That's single player is a good point. Okay. Yeah, I think right. six is fine. But I think those are both. We, you and I actually heard a talk recently about the difference between uh, principles and laws. Yes, we did. Um, I feel like the Berlin interpretation is almost, let's say, laws, and I feel like these are more like principles. Like these are these are these are bro- these are slightly broader, boiling down, and and are flexible, and are, and, are, and are a little more flexible. And I think that those <laughs> six cover both of these these as a group, um, but but are a little more forgiving. So, for example, like Road Not Taken is one that I've been playing a lot recently, and I really yeah. like. But it's not. It is not a roguelike in this traditional sense because if there's no hack and slash. You're not it's f- more puzzle, isn't it? It's it's all puzzle. It's I mean I sort of described it to you as Sokoban, which is not quite right because it's not it's not pushing things. You're like throwing things, uh-huh. but it's it's all puzzle. It's all combination based. Um, yeah, I mean in my mind it sort of feels like a Sokoban roguelike, um, but the like there's no combat in it, but it's still complex. There's tactical thinking. There's a lot of tactical thinking. There's a lot of planning. There's a lot of attempting things over and over and over again until you optimize it. But yeah, but it doesn't fit any of these more traditional roguelikes. And I think FTL is the same way. Like there's no dungeon in FTL, but there is a very strict path that you have to follow. And there's very much a, I mean, you could backtrack a bit, but it's going to be much, much more difficult because the monster, the enemies behind you are much more dangerous than the enemies in front of you. And there's that sort of time clock. And there's, there's also like decisions to make when you do the larger jumps, which region right. you want to go into. There's risk reward decisions in that regard as there's well. Also, there's also a little like story beats. Like, do I want to send five guys after these alien, you know, with these aliens mm-hmm. to try to get something back? And some of those are good for you and some of those are bad for you. Yeah. I, I actually think a progress clock is important to a lot of roguelikes, but not all of them. Like Dungeons of Dreadmore does not have any sort of progress clock. It really depends on, on what the what the goal is. Dungeons of Dreadmore is a little more or rather a little less time oriented. It's it's less time or it's it's also a little bit more beginner friendly. Yeah, it is. Um but I mean but like it's you know in, in Baby's a lot- first roguelike. <laughs> Yeah, very close. But I mean, like in in Dungeon Crawl, you have the like if you run out of food, you die. And in a mm-hmm. lot of the older roguelikes, if you run out of food, you die because basically they don't want you just sitting there grinding forever. Right. Um. I think Dread Dreadmore, you could actually probably grind forever, although it would get boring after a while. But I guess people, if they want to do it, they, you know, you could literally grind up to max. 
level on the first floor. Although it may be possible, I've never gotten far enough in Dungeons of Dreadmore that even if you max out your, you know, it may be a case that the levels don't actually give you all that much level up bonuses. They just give you skills. So even mm-hmm. maxing out doesn't necessarily give you bonuses in the same way that it would in some of the more traditional roguelikes like your net hacks or your uh, dungeon crawls where they also give you stat bonuses. Right. Um, that would actually be interesting to see if, if you did max your level, uh, how much easier it would actually be. I mean, you get slight bonuses, but it would still be finite. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be interesting to see. I know you've been playing a lot of Adom recently, or at least some. You, you yeah. should talk about that because I don't like that game very much. Uh, well, I got to think about that. What did I like about Adom? I've gotten through to the second dungeon, okay. which isn't really saying much. It's more like the first dungeon. There's a lot Is of that things the that the puppy I cave? The what? The puppy cave? No, I don't okay. think so. Um, oh, maybe that's in uh, Caves of Cud. It might be. Uh, so let's see here. You start out in like the corner of the map surrounded by mountains and you're going to mm-hmm. path down to the first village. Not much there. There's some rations mm-hmm. uh, discovered pretty quickly. You need you have a very fast food clock, uh-huh. um, which is interesting. It adds an extra dynamic because like I, I had a full backpack of rations to take with me, but I think the more you're hauling, the hungry, you, the faster you get hungry. Oh, that means, so yeah, maybe it's an interesting balancing effect there. Uh, lots of good equipment. One of the things that I've always loved in roguelikes and, and I, I like from a pretty early age, I was into roguelikes and, mm. and I, I like lad local area dungeon right. was one of the first ones that I played. I loved it. Mine, it. mine was castle of the wind, which is not technically castle of the winds. No, that came from the same CD. It, it was, well, your, in your case, it did mine. I actually, it, they were, they were yeah, all originally shareware games. Yeah. Castle of the wind. I remember that game. I, that I, got, awesome. I found mine in a, in, but that's not technically a roguelike. No, but because the dungeons are always the same. Yes, that's true. However, in the, Adam, the so far, as was very similar. One of the things that I loved about Castle in the Wind and I was looking for it in another game mm. is an overworld and, and like going, mm. finding dungeons. And so there was more of that. You go down mm. to the village, you get a quest, you go into the dungeon to find this guy. It's interesting because I didn't like that in most games. The only one, well, we'll get to it in a second, but sorry, go ahead. Uh, that's one thing that I liked. Um, there's uh, a lot of different uh, abilities. I also liked the way that the character generation was because it, um, it's See, I found that like, really normally, hard. Well, that's the thing though. Is normally I'm I'm all about like tailoring my character to whatever right. I want going through the entire thing. I actually found myself using the random generator hmm. and it wasn't it wasn't like I felt like it was a bad thing. I was yeah. actually able to pick up whatever I got for a classification, which was nice. Yeah. Uh, Cause half the time you're like you you're like, what what do these things do? Do I even want to do them? And then you turns out that when you pick them up, like you get the rogue and you don't know how to use it. So far, it seems like it's straightforward how to use it. Like I played the mage a couple of times, and it was, you know, it was clear what to do. Hmm. So yeah, I think my problem with 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 Adam, maybe I should try going back to it. Was I was trying to optimize too much, and maybe mm-hmm. that maybe maybe with a game specifically like that, it would be more interesting to not do that. I think what this game encourages <clears throat> uh, is dynamic play, like mm. being responsive, reactive to whatever happens. So I think it's better to just let the thing randomly pick for you and then just see how far you can get with a loadout. Okay. And then as you get more accustomed to the way the characters play then you can maybe pick and choose what you really want, okay. knowing more effectively what they do. So so I was, I, I'm going to, so I will actually say I didn't like um, overworld maps all that much. I was much more one of those people who, you know, I actually think it's a lot like the uh, the Diablo 1, Diablo 2, or Torchlight 1, Torchlight 2 uh, breakdown, where I think people either really, really gravitate towards one or the other, where 
Diablo 1 and Torchlight 1, you're just going down a lot of layers of dungeon, whereas mm-hmm. the, the the sequels, you're going a lot further out. And I, I tend to prefer the, the former to the latter. It's it's more, not, not necessarily the fact that it's an overworld map, as mm. it is just the idea of a larger world. Yes. Because like a lot of those games, they start you at the beginning of a dungeon, yep. and you're just trying to get through the dungeon. Yeah. Uh, there's like sub dungeons you can find your way to, mm. but the idea that you're starting out like in the world yeah. and you have to find the dungeon and go in and you have a specific quest, it just makes the whole world more that makes accessible. Sense. I, I I will say, yeah, I, I think for me it was, I very much liked the, 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 the dungeon aspect just because I liked the, uh, the immediacy of it, the, oh, well, I've arrived and now I'm stuck here and what am I going to do? Yes. But I will say there, there there are two games that I've actually played recently that have Overworld, one of which I really hate, one of which I really like. And I need to go back to the one I don't like because at some point I really feel like I haven't done it justice. But That's so, Caves of Caves of Cut. Caves of Cut I don't like. It has an Overworld, very similar, actually very similar to Adom's. I got to um, try that game. It does look good to me. It feels like it. You may like it more because it feels very much like Adom. Um, although, I mean, even just stuff like the graphics in it, I don't like. Like, the screen is intentionally made to look like an old CRT monitor, and that just bugs me. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of just little stuff around the edges that kind of irritates me about that game, but a lot of it is, like, it's like, the, and they intentionally did this because it's, ba- it's based on Gamma World, which people who've played Gamma World, which is an old, which is a sort of a D&D, well, it originally wasn't D&D. But it's now, a D&D reskin. It's, that's exactly well, what it, it is. Well, it, it wasn't originally. It was its own system once upon a time. But it is now a D&D reskin. But it, it, it's a very random – it is a very random game. And even, even yeah. when you play the tabletop game, you know, a single bad roll could completely wipe your entire party. Yeah. In a way that it doesn't in D&D. It seems to me like almost – uh, like when they made Gamma World, or at least the D and D reskin version, right. which is the one I'm familiar with, that it, they were pulling ideas from roguelikes. the The idea of permadeath, yes, specifically that it's much easier to kill well, like, a character. Like, like in like in the older versions of Gamma World, you could actually die during character creation. Like you could you could have you could roll up a character that was just like Traveler. Actually, had this once upon a time too, where you could roll up a character, and part of your backstory is, oh, I was in a war and I died. <laughs> and then you just have to roll up and you can, which is stupid, but which you is can very stupid. Do it. Um, <clears throat> I guess the way you could look at that is it's just like re-roll, right? It's it's a re-roll, but you know, I mean, it's quote unquote realistic, but stupid. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they they've done something similar in this in, in Caves of Cut, where you can just get some really wacky powers, but also like the monsters are kind of the same problem, where you you know you can go into an area that's completely easy, and then there will be one monster, and you have no way of knowing this, but it's just a compl- it'll just kill you in one hit or two hits, and mm-hmm. uh, you, you have no reason to sus- to suspect that. Like you can't necessarily look at the levels of everything. I I think I ran across that problem when I was playing Adom. Yeah. I think uh, I, the, it was kind of deceptive how easy the beginning level is. Yeah. And then suddenly you're having your face ripped off. Oh, that was something. Sorry, going back to Adam. Oh, go ahead. Um, I don't know if you knew about this, but there's a, a, a tactics menu. Mm, interesting. And, and so what you, you're like at normal tactical level, it's just like you, right, wandering mm-hmm. around. But you can go to full berserk mode and you can go to full coward mode at any time. Interesting. And what that does is if you're in full berserk mode, your chance to hit and your damage is really high, but your ability to dodge is also dramatically reduced. Oh, interesting. And then in the alternative, in coward mode, your chance to hit and your damage is heavily reduced, but your chance to be hit 
I guess the question is how much those outweigh each other. It Well, uh, apparently from the people who were watching me play, it was kind of important to remember to stay in coward mode unless you're actually attacking something. Ah, I see. Okay. Because then, then, you know, increasing your chances of not getting one-shotted by something because it increases... Oh, yeah. What, what I specifically meant was during during combat it feels like if that's enough of a sliding scale then doing being 50 percent more likely to hit something but also 50 percent more likely to take damage like you should still kill a monster and take about as much damage even as you would if you are 50 percent less likely to hit but also 50 percent less likely to take damage yeah like um so i will say the other game that, that i've played with an overworld that i really like is probably one of my favorite roguelikes it's I think I have three that I would consider my favorite right now, but is definitely one of those three is uh, Tales is uh, Tales of Majael. That has an overworld. Once upon a time, known as Tales of Middle Earth. So I guess you can figure out why it has an overworld. Oh um, yeah, well, I'm and why they changed their name. Well, yeah, well, yes, th- that's why. Um, and actually, it was comp- like completely rewrote the backstory. Darren Gray actually, I believe, helped with some of that. Speaking yeah. of roguelike radio, um, redid the music. Uh, dude's actually super cool. I believe he's known as uh, Dark God on Twitter. Um, but like, I reached out to him because I was doing streams of it and putting it on my YouTube. And uh, because the guy who does the music for the game also has those songs for other commercial purposes, um, I guess apparently like he has them tied to like there. There's some uh, media thing that will automatically like you know block your block your YouTube yeah. videos if you play these games. But he's just like you know just reach out to me on Twitter and I'll reach out to YouTube and we'll get, get, get anybody who does that whitelisted. So, you know, I did the first couple of videos myself, but after, you know, after four or five, I'm just like, Hey, can you whitelist me? And it was in like two hours. So dude, dude's super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even like, like if you go out to the blog of the guy who did the music, like his rationale and explanation for it is fascinating. Yeah. Um, like I just, everything about this game is really like the way that it works from a <clears throat> developer slash, uh, creator standpoint is really, uh, I think, fascinating. It's something that other indie developers should really look at. But yeah, it has an overworld. <clears throat> it also has some like interesting, like special dungeons that that have like special. Um, like I, I don't want to spoil any of them, uh, but there there was a point where I played the game two or three times and I'm like, yeah, this is okay. And then there was a very specific boss, and I will I will tell people where it is. It's the it's the boss of the Dwarven Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um. And, and that boss is a very specific way you have to beat it. And uh, it was not until I got to that boss that I said, Oh, no, this game is doing some really crazy stuff. Like this game is, do- this is a roguelike that is doing things that no other roguelike is doing. Um, but even beyond that, stuff that I can explain that without spoiling is like your character has powers and the powers work very similar. They're all on cooldowns and they work very similar to like wow powers. Like even your warrior. Like in most roguelikes, fighting most monsters is you walk up next to the enemy and you press towards them a few times and eventually you kill them. It's bump combat. It's bump combat. Tales of Majael, I mean, warriors and there are, there are a couple of classes that do 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 more bump combat. But with most classes, if you are bu- doing bump combat, something has gone wrong. <laughs> like you have done something wrong um, because there are, you know, you start out with like six powers. Um, and it's usually like a targeting power, an attack power, a movement power, and then you have uh, like a couple of, of the, I forget what they're called, but they're like 
like almost like cantrips where like one of them's a healing and one of them's like regeneration or and, and a shielding. Sounds like it's got a little bit of D and D influence. There always there. Oh, definitely some D and D influence, but but like D and D four, you know, like like mm-hmm. the, like the new D and D. So it it, yeah. it does feel it plays much more like a ta- it's a very tactical game. Um, there's a lot of like you know it is a game where there's this ten like I sometimes have this tendency to just run ahead because I know that like. It's pretty, it's, you know, I'm like, oh, well, I've, I've explored over this area. I think you're like, oh crap, I'm surrounded on two sides and all of my powers require me to be on the left side of my enemies. Ah, uh, crud. <laughs> um, and then you have to say, okay, well, I have this power, which will stun people, this power, which will pin people, this power, which will let me jump away from them. All right. If I do this, 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 and this, uh, I could probably get over on this side of these guys and then I should probably be, sa- you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of status effects. There's a lot of movement effects, but they're done in way, like in most games, like, if I play Final Fantasy, I never use status effects. Whereas in this game, I'm constantly using status effects. I'm constantly using movement effects. Right. Um, and it just, I mean, it does. It feels like play, it, it, it's, it is all the best parts of WoW combat. Right. Actually, that makes me think of uh, another rogue, like, mm. um, which actually does have, well, has kind of like the best of both worlds. It okay. has its standard bump to attack combat Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of flexibility and if you want to diversify uh i like if you have a long pole arm you can actually attack at range you can fire weapons um and it's actually one of my favorite roguelikes cataclysm dark days ahead Mm, i almost feel like we need its own that that one almost we're gonna touch on it because it is a roguelike and it's a big one and there's so much we can talk about for this game that's actually one where i i was actually while we were discussing the berlinian versus versus later uh interpretations that's one i actually come back to and say i can't decide whether i would put that in a strict berlinian or not Mm. um well uh, let's actually there's so much that game is just so dense that's a good point. Uh, well, it's got random event environment generation. It's mm-hmm. got permadeath. Mm-hmm. It's turn-based. It's mm-hmm. grid-based. It's non-modal. It's complex. I mean, you cannot... I'm not sure it is non-modal, but we'll, we'll, we'll move on from that one. Uh, a resource management. Mm-hmm. Hack and slash. Mm-hmm. And it's got exploration and discovery. And, and yet, it feels nothing like a roguelike. And feels everything like... I know that's the funny thing. Well, I mean, because it's got a it feels strong like survival aspect. Yeah. It feels way more like a Minecraft or DayZ. Yeah. yeah, which is kind of a nice. It's really good mashup because mm. it it really makes you feel like you're going to be killed by a moose in five minutes. My biggest my biggest problem with Cataclysm, and I think some of this is probably going to have to wait until we can dig deeper into it. But my biggest problem with that game is that it is either awesome, and I feel like I am on the edge of my seat the whole time. Or I feel like I come out ahead and I am completely safe within about one day, and then I have no idea why I'm continuing to play. Mm. Um, because you either get like, well, that's well, that's the other thing. It's kind of a sad situation for you to be in. Sorry to cut you off. Oh my God. Um, but there are end game stuff you should be pushing towards when you uh, get to that point. So I didn't even know that. Yeah, you should be looking for science labs. Oh, see, I like I said, like I, I thought, oh, well, I've got a cool place here. I've holed up. I've got farms. I've got fields. I'll just sort of survive. Cause yeah, if you, if you read about it in the blogs from the developer, mm. it's, it's a two stage or it might be more than two stage game. It, it, the idea is you start from that whole, I'm going to die. I need to survive. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the next phase, which is, uh, pushing against, yeah, see, What's I just I never on. feel like I quite get to the level where like I'm good enough to survive forever, but I never feel like I'm quite to the point where I'm ready to take I've, on a huge. I've never gotten onto that that next part 
otherwise and it's got a rough transition point there yeah. that's kind of not obvious yeah you kind of have to read into it to know what to do next yeah. which but is I mean, kind of sad i will say like i i my, my most recent game i had this thing where i got set up and i'm like well i could i'm in a house in the middle of town i've got no zombies anywhere around me and i can just hold up here for a week and nothing will nothing will affect me and I basically have been, and I'm just like, well, this is interesting, but it's kind of boring at the same time. And I'm also, not doing anything. the more time passes, yeah. the more difficult things get. Because not necessarily, only if you're doing uh, dynamic. No, 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 no. Oh. I mean, di- there's dynamic, and then there's, as time progresses, the spawns that generate, and not just the dynamic ones, but the ones as you like explore a new terrain, oh, become more difficult. So you might secure your area and you could just hole up and, and right. die from old age, right. technically speaking. But technically speaking, also, you only have so many resources and you have to start going further and further Well, you can, you can start farming and then at that point you have pretty much infinite resources. You can't resources. farm in that game. Yeah, you can. Can you? Yeah. Huh. You can build farm plots. Well, did not. Oh, yeah, you can. Yeah. And I mean, at that point, you can, you have food, you can build everything else, um... I mean, if, if, you know, I'm in a city, I have 40 or 50 buildings that I can raid stuff from. That'll provide me food for a couple months, um, yeah. which is more than enough time to get farming underway. And then you could just start dismantling objects and building stuff. Like, it's kind of insane how far you can get. Yeah. And, and again, there's a lot of content in this. That a we lot can of cover. game. Yeah. We, we, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of scary how much it really does. It is almost bigger than. So, some- so some of the things to touch on, just for those of oh. you who are interested, this game. This game carries a ton uh, of uh, really good stuff. It, it's got a huge dynamically generated world, uh, a huge diversity of enemies, and an mm-hmm. amazing and massive backstory. Yeah, I, I haven't dug. I, I actually didn't care that much about the, the backstory. Well, for if, those, if it's something you care about, yeah, you will like it. it. You will definitely like it, and it, it, there's like reasons for everything that's mm-hmm. going on, and it's kind of bleak. Yes. So. It's got a lot going for it. So I, I actually have one game that I'd like to talk a little bit about. I also this one also I have set up for its its own um, its own episode along with a couple of other games. Uh, but well, let's let's specifically talk about the designer himself, and then I will mention his two games. So Michael Bro has several mm-hmm. games that I really roguelikes that I really like. He did a eight six eight hack, yeah. uh, which I've said before. I really wish was called five two seven hack. <laughs> which uh, I don't know the context of that. Well, well, eight six eight is just because it's. A, Good number. Uh, five two seven would be N E T on a cell phone. Mm. On, on a cell phone keypad, it would be N E T. I see you're being funny. Yes, I think it would be. I think it would be cute. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm not. I, th- I think somebody else had, had brought that up too. But uh, that, you know, if you were doing like beeper, that would be N E T N E T hack. Um, so eight six eight hack and Imbroglio is a second game, um, and they are really interesting because the, there are two things that make them different from almost every other roguelike I've played. So roguelikes. In general, older roguelikes especially did ha- have scores. Like mm-hmm. the speed at which you beat the game is your score. Yeah. Imbroglio and 868 Hack also have scores, but they aren't played in the same way. Um, they're both on a... 868 Hack is on a 5x5 grid and Imbroglio is on a 4x4 grid. Oh, yeah. I think you showed me I've showed things. you Imbroglio. Yeah. Um, and 868 Hack, you, you go between floors. Based on certain conditions. In Brolio, you always stay on the same floor. Like that, that, that four by four grid is the dungeon. And it's the monsters coming through the corners. Monsters right? coming through the corners, and your score is based on picking up, uh, stars. And every time you pick up a star, the walls of the dungeon shift. So it re, it re, it remakes, like the dungeon actually changes, but the floor doesn't. And that's what affects your attacks. 
is you put certain cards down and those cards give you your attacks and you're leveling those up as you go. Um, and it's really interesting because they're both played in very, very small spaces um, and they are both played in, in score chases. And I think both of those really make those game really fascinating and very unique is that they are based on, you have all of the information when you, when you start that level, you have all of the information in front of you at a glance. You know exactly what's going to happen. Um, in 868 hack, your score is based on you triggering these certain computer terminals. Mm-hmm. Um, some of which give you points, some of which give you new spells, um, or abilities. And triggering them spawns a certain number of enemies. Right. So you know, before you even do it, what this is going to give you and what it's going to cause, what, how many enemies it's going to trigger. And it's all about risk versus reward. Um, because there is, and, and there is a theoretical maximum level of score you can get because there are 15 floors. Um, so the maximum score you could get is, uh, 150 points is the maximum score you can get. I don't think I've ever seen anything above about 123. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's like, that's it. That is, that is all you get. Um, is, is, the, but triggering a five point box also spawns five enemies and one enemy can kill you. Um, right. Because like if they sneak up behind you, one enemy is enough to kill you. Um, and Imbrolio is kind of the same way. The monsters come in from each of the corners, uh, and they could kill you. <clears throat> and so you kind of have to, you know, there's, there's a lot more thinking in advance, but the having the perfect information really makes that game very unique. Mm-hmm. And I think Imbrolio is probably one of the best roguelikes I've ever played. Imbrolio <clears throat> has, it definitely has quite a bit of, um, tower defense in it. Doesn't it? Because mm. uh, the cards you lay down. There's a lot of pre-planning. I don't know that I would call it tower defense. Mm, okay. <clears throat> in, in quite the same way. There's, de- there's definitely a lot of strategy to it. There's much, it's much more strategic than most roguelikes. Most okay. roguelikes, I'd say, are tactical. Well, it's very uh, kind of interesting. It's got quite the style to it. 868 yes. hack does. It's very green. Yeah, 868 hack is very computery. <laughs> computery. Um, and I will say one other uh, roguelike that I that we will talk about later is um, Morph Play. That's going to come up again uh, in that episode as well. But I'm going to also say that uh, we've talked about Dungeons of Dreadmore a couple of times. Uh, I really like that game. I like Dungeons of, Dread- Dungeons of Dreadmore a lot. But like you said, it is very much a baby's first roguelike. I'd say that or DCSS would probably be my other baby's first roguelike. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, don't I don't know. I don't know. DCSS is actually fairly hard, but I it's it's very approachable. It does. Yeah, it is. Because, like, early levels, I mean, you will get through the first few levels, mm-hmm. and it it would it would really give you a feel for what the genre is about. Yes. Without, like, you know, dr- drilling it, it through I your mean, head. It's very interesting, because, like, Dungeons of Dreadmore is actually much deeper and more complex than it seems at first blush, because it is so cartoony. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, like, the really, the really interesting, or one of the really interesting things, there's a lot of interesting things about Dreadmore, but one of the really interesting things is, you start out by being able to pick seven out of a palette of like 45 skills i think with the expansion packs it's like 55 yeah but in each of those skills do various things like like one skill is axes another is you know some are crafting related some are magic related and you can mix and match you can have a character who's all rogue roguey skills you can have a character who's all wizard skills you can have a character who's some rogue and some wizardy skills you can have one that's <clears> just <throat> absolutely ridiculous who's a terrorist bank terrorist a tourist banker uh with an affinity for photography or something and, and who's a vegan was a vegan and a geologist. Yes. But, I mean, it, that game is kind of, in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like um, Settlers of Catan, where it is 
hypothetically, you could give yourself, you could randomly pick some really awesome skills, or you could pick some skills that are completely useless when put together. And yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, that's really interesting. On the other hand, like, that's what I mean when I say, like, it seems really, really newbie friendly at first blush, but actually could be kind of, I imagine could be kind of frustrating if you don't know what that's all about before you go into it. Like Mm -hmm. being like, oh, I lost it. I didn't even know how to, uh, I didn't even know what I was choosing. And it turns out that I chose the six worst possible skills. Yeah. But the thing about that is, is it's, it's fairly obvious to any new player, like, and this is something that any new player should really be doing is looking at picking things that are obvious to start with. Well, I mean, just to get an idea. But theoretically, I mean, you know, if you looked at it, you might say, oh, maybe I should pick wands and axes and maces because I never know which one of those I might come across. Which would be a bad idea. Which would be a bad idea. Um, Yeah, I think, I mean, this could just go and be us, you know, spending the next half hour talking about these games that we like. Um, I will say there, there are definitely a few more that I'd, I'd, I'd love to hit, but I think we're, we're reaching point where we should probably, uh, move on from just talking about the game specifically, but let's talk about a couple of, um, so we're not taken. I think I'd like to get back to a little bit more, yeah. um, some other time, but I think that does some really clever stuff. But so I have one question, which is ASCII. Yeah. I'm getting sick. Of, I'm starting to get kind of sick of them. And I used to love ASCII in, in roguelikes. And I'm reaching the point where, with the exception of Dwarf Fortress, I'm pretty much only playing graphically graphic tile sets. Well, am I getting old, or is it just have we just kind of gotten the point where ASCII is just kind of not really fun anymore? I think <clears throat> I think it's kind of run its course. Okay. Um. There's a lot of people who think it's absolutely crucial that a game is ASCII text mm. because, well, they're elitists right. ultimately. But the the um, the fact of the matter is, is ASCII text was defined was derived from a need to use symbols to represent things because the computers of the time did not have the cap capacity of more than one or eight color palettes. True. And and very simple things and using the curses ascii system a system that used characters to represent stuff was a very smart way to minimize memory impact when you only had you know 32 kilobytes of ram on a computer and wanted to build a game that would take advantage of that yes but we don't need to do that anymore and while there's some novelty to it in truth it's kind of impractical yeah i agree I think that's a good point, and I think that the fact that we have graphics really does help. And, and there's there's something to be said for nostalgia. I do like a good mm. ASCII game, but it also can be a little cluttered. Oh, yeah, it can I'm not be saying we shouldn't hard. Have. Yeah, I mean, there's some good examples. Brogue is mm-hmm. a great example of like taking the ASCII text to the nth level. It's a beautiful game. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it, Cataclysm, too. Cataclysm, yeah, actually, you know what? Cataclysm is a good-looking game. It uses it to its full extent, mm-hmm. but there's talk about them changing up how that game. Oh, they they have they have a t- they have tile sets for it. I just I that that I think for for, for similar reasons to um, Dwarf Fortress, I like to be able to tell at a glance everything I'm looking at, and I find it easier to do with the ASCII. Magazine. Which actually, well, by your nature, is much easier for you to do than like someone like me. Yes, for you, I imagine the graphics would be a lot easier. It's just a lot of noise. It's hard for me to actually determine one thing from another yeah. because I don't see P's and Q's. I see squiggles right and for me it's the color like being able to tell instantly oh that's a green z versus a dark green z versus a light green z versus a blue z and i know what each of those colors corresponds to is 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 easier um so here's another here's another question that i have 
Go ahead. Should roguelike players have to backfill the classics in the same way that I don't think movie movie watchers should, but I think people who want to be movie fans should in the same way that I think people who want to get into anime should go back. There are certain movies that I would say you should really go back and watch if you're going to appreciate modern if, stuff. If if you like... Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that there... Or, or, or here's another... Or, here, or maybe here's another way of phrasing it or, or a different way of thinking about it. Do you think roguelike players are going to naturally be drawn to, quote-unquote, the classics just because those are still some of the big names? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mm. think anyone who really gets into a roguelike because of the nature of roguelikes is going to be looking for other roguelikes. Yeah, that's true. Because and the big five there's are so still much out diversity. There. No one, no one ever makes. It's not like Call of Duty Four. Once you've played Call of Duty Four, you don't need to technically play the other ones because they all play the same. Right. Each roguelike is different. That's true. And. And that diversity in just the gameplay mechanics and stuff, it means that every every time you pop one open, it's a new type of new way to play. And there's well, let me let me, let me phrase it a little differently. Or, 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 or I agree with you. Um, so I th- I think what I was actually trying to get at with this is, do you think because like I went, I I remember playing Tales of Magiel. Yeah. Do you think that people who play newer roguelikes will still be able to form the appreciation for older roguelikes if they don't play them first? Oh, that's a good question. Like, I'm not you, sure. Do you think if you had started with Dungeons of Dreadmore, you would still have the appreciation that we do for Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup? Well, Stone Soup, yes, okay. because it has it has a graphical tile set. Well, if I mean, you might have but I mean, like, the gameplay if I, is still if I, if I, Like, say, a 12-year-old kid, first time that they got onto uh, a roguelike, mm-hmm. and they played something like that, they might not have the patience to learn how to play Angband, sure. which is... Well, I don't have patience for Angband. Oh, I love Angband. I have it on my tablet. But, um, but I'm... You know, I'm kind of old school in right. my games. And, and so that colors my opinion on that. Mm. I don't think I can actually say yes or no. My gut instinct is to say no okay even though my heart says please please go back and try out these games because yes. they are the foundation of this genre and 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 speaking of, and speaking of uh foundations so i i we have one question i have one more set of questions for both of us but but before that i do want to quickly talk about seven day roguelikes um mm-hmm. which is a, a a year an annual competition which is people building roguelikes in seven days and I think that is something people should, people who are really interested in the roguelike genre and the roguelike concept should keep an eye on. Cause that tends to be where people try, because they're quick games, that seems to be where people do a lot of the pushing at the edges of what you can yes. do with a roguelike. Uh, one of, one of my all time favorites to come out of the roguelike, well, there's two. Uh, one is called Chess Rogue, which is you start out as a pawn on the first level. And as you eat a certain number of chess pieces of a certain types, you can um, gain their ability. So if you eat enough knights, you can do a knight jump. And if you eat enough uh, bishops, you can do a bishop move. That sounds cool. It's really interesting. And that was a seven-day roguelike. And there was another one called Hive, uh, which is built around the idea of the old uh, Reiner Kine- I think it's Reiner Kinesia board game, um, where you play as a bug and you're getting surrounded. And you're trying to make a, basically make a line across the map. But anytime a bug walks over it, it erases one of the hexes. And anytime you get, and if you get surrounded on all six sides, you die. Mm-hmm. So basically, each of your attacks is based on which leg. So you you rotate as you move, and your legs move with you. And each of your legs and your head and your tail each do a different kind of attack. Hmm. 
One of them pushes things. One of them kills things. One of them sort of shoves a couple of things. So it's it's a lot of positional stuff. It's a lot of really interesting stuff. But I think that's where a lot of the really crazy stuff I, is happening. I have a question to, uh, for you. If okay. you've been looking into the seven-day roguelike, which I haven't actually looked I've into. I've done some. I've not done a ton. Have you seen any roguelikes that, that the one thing that I've noticed that they haven't really pushed away from, and I have an idea I want to actually start developing, mm-hmm. it'll be my first game I've actually tried to, well, second, second. game, uh, grid-based. Have you seen anything that didn't actually fall under the grid-based formula? I mean, I would argue that FTL does. I, no, it does. Hmm. That's a tough I, one. I guess it depends uh, on how you define grid-based. Um. Well, it's very rigid in its positioning. I mean, I, I would Combat argue- doesn't have any maneuvering ship to ship. It's going from star to star. True. And the stars are rigid. I mean, I, I, I would probably argue that um, Morphblade... Morphblade is hex-based, but I guess that's still technically... That's a grid. Yeah. A grid. Um, in Galaxy... Galaxy. Which that's is, a rogue. That, I guess that is a roguelike. I, I mean... Well, it's it kind of a... roguelite, at mm. least. Um, I don't know. Um... I don't necessarily know that I would say that I've. Um, I do have. Renown an, Explorers, maybe. Well, no, because that's a tactical game. I do have an idea for a game that's going. I'm going to completely right. ditch the grid system, but it's the game I talked about in the um, in the uh, in the disaster cast. Oh, okay. I've not listened to all of that yet. I need to do yeah, that. no, I have an idea for a game that I <laughs> I kind of pitched out. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that. And. Um, one of the things I want to do is kind of like ditch the grid-based system. I think that would be interesting a, to say. A range-based system. Oh, I see. Um, I have not seen anything like that, but I don't... I mean, one of the things about the Seven-Day Roguelike is it is graded based on the Berlin system. So mm-hmm. I think that's why people don't do that. Um, that That is actually how they score it, is the mo- is how many of those you you achieve. Well, Darren Gray is heavily involved in that. Wouldn't he have, like, pushed away from the Berlin system he by now? He doesn't like it, but uh, well, that's he still run the scoring. It, does he? No, he doesn't run it. No, but he um, participates. He, does, he is one of the judges. All right, um, well... You, you, you could. I suspect you could at the very least talk to him after it's done and get, get his opinion on it. I, I intend to because I actually really respect those guys. If yeah, I no, get as far as having a playable version, I'm going to. Ask I, them. I think I think Darren Gray is cool. I think Dark God One is pretty cool. Um, yeah, I think I think I think if you actually got far enough, if nothing else, I'm sure a couple of them would be willing to play test it. If nothing else. Oh yeah. Um. Um. Yeah. No, that would be cool to see. And and so my my last set of questions. Oh, sorry. Unless you have something. Oh well, I was kind of going to go off on a tangent. So go ahead. Okay. So my last set is basically just sort of, uh, well, I'll just I'll just read read through one of them at a time. Where where to start in roguelikes? Where to where, start? Where, what would you give to somebody? I also have most approachable. I think these are slightly they're slightly different. But if somebody said to you, "I want to try a roguelike," which would be the one you would give to? The, well, a which would be the one you would give them from an approachability standpoint, and B, which is the one you would give them and say, you will really like this. This is what will tell you what roguelikes is all about. That's a tough one. Okay, mm. so the first one is actually really easy because I think I think right now the best game to get people really into mm-hmm. would absolutely be um, Brain Poop. Dreadmore? Dread- Dungeons of Dreadmore. From an approachability standpoint? Cause mm. Just because it's fun and engaging. Yeah. And it's got so much humor in it that it helps lighten the uh, the difficulty of the game, and it's not. It, you still get the feeling of difficulty and, and challenge in the game, and you still get a feeling of what roguelikes are all about. I think I would actually go from an approachability standpoint. I actually, and I actually meant to, I 
feel bad I didn't bring this up earlier. Uh, Sproggywood. Sproggywood? Sproggywood is actually a uh, iOS, and I think it's probably on Android too. Uh, mm-hmm. I, there's also a Steam version, but um, it's it is a it is a very it is a, it is somewhat of a traditional roguelike, but it plays m- kind of like um, it has an overworld, but it kind of has. Some of those interesting iOS touches to it. Yeah, Fifteen bucks on Steam right now. Yeah, and it's got some of those really interesting, like I like there's stars based on how you beat the levels, but like you unlock um, classes based oh, on. It's very cute. Beating each floor mm-hmm. or beating each level, so like you only you only start with one class. Ah, um, and okay. I, which is which is really cool because it, it it from an approachability standpoint, it's like learn how to play this class, then learn how to play this class, then learn how to play this class, and each dungeon is slightly harder. Um, it has more floors, um, so each each overworld map is it gets a little harder, um, and it has like special stuff you can buy. It's got that little build up your iOS town type thing at the, at the mm-hmm. beginning. You know, it's it's got a lot of those things that people who are used to other genres might get be might find a little more approachable. Um, I really like it. I find it really cute. It's a little more casual it, too. It's a little more. It actually gets pretty hardcore. Well, I mean, casual is like casual. It, it touches on the casual gameplay. Yes, play it, it touches a lot of the. Ca- it, it, yes, it, it definitely draws some ins- inspiration from those. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it is, and also something that's super. cool. It does two uh, other really cool things, which is one of which is um, leveling up is fairly easy, and each time you level up, you gain it. You get a new power, or you get a new bonus to your power. So mm-hmm. there's four powers for each class. And every time you level up, you get to pick one of them, and then you can level those up as you get further on. Um, and then there's a potion that allows you to scramble your power, so you can grab. So it'll just randomly give you powers from any class. Right. Um, so those those are two cool things that I think for uh, approachability. Um, as far as the where to as as far as if I was to tell somebody where where to start to really know about, I know what you're going to say what tales of my agile. No, I don't think I don't no? think that. I think that encapsulates a lot of what what, dunge- what uh, roguelikes are about, but I think it's so it is so much different from so many of the traditional. Like if I was going to tell somebody this is what a this is a roguelike encapsulated in one game, it would totally be Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that is like it is is massive. There's so much poss- content in possibly that. NetHack because that does. Some really interesting things with wishes, but I think yeah. if you want to talk one game that encapsulates ninety percent of what roguelikes are about, it would be Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup. Yeah, um, I agree one hundred percent on that. That's a great game. Too. All right, now now we the the other three questions are best, most fun, and favorite. Ooh. So do you want to go first? On I this will. Or? I will say for me, the most fun is definitely Tales of Mount Jail. Um, I think that is the most fun because it is so much. There is so much more thinking. There's so much more planning. It is a much more active game. And for me, that's that's what I want is I want to, you know, bump, I, bump combat is fine, but I like the I th- feel a little more paying attention. I think for most fun, Adom wins with that. Mm, okay. I, I, I really enjoyed that one. Yes. Best, um, I'm going to have to say, honestly, Stone Soup. Just because I think, without going straight to the the older ones and the classic ones, I think Stone Soup really does a good job of keeping to like core roguelike tenets. I think for me, best is either Stone Soup or Tales of Magia. I think those are like those are my two desert island roguelikes. Like if I could only ever play two roguelikes, it would be those two. Right. Um. And I think for me, the 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 favorite is definitely has to be Imbroglio. I think Imbroglio is doing things that no other game. 
uh, is and has tried. And like, if there's one, if there's one roguelike that I wish more developers would look at, it is Imbroglio. I think mm. there is so much just like Michael Bro is clearly just a game design genius. It is just such a smart. It is just such a smart game. Yeah. Well, it's very smart. Yes. Very good. Uh, I think my favorite would have to be uh, Cataclysm. DJ. I was gonna say that 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 if you didn't say that, I was gonna call you a liar. Um, <laughs> uh, well, just because I love the theming, I love the yeah. styling. There's so much content, uh, so much to explore, and it's a truly challenging. Yes, game. I mean, if I think there are probably days where, I mean, like I said, I think my my, my three my top three are uh, Tales of Majael. Uh, Imbroglio and probably Dwarf Fortress if we're talking three, but maybe Cataclysm. Uh, I don't, there, there are days you could, you could get me to swap Tales of Angel and Imbroglio. I don't think there's every day. I think Dwarf Fortress is always a hard third. Um, mm-hmm. I, I come back to it, but I don't know that I would ever call that my number the one. The adventure rogue-like. mode, right? No, just Dwarf Fortress. I, okay. I don't play the adventure mode. Okay. I never have. So you, you think of Dwarf Fortress, Fortress mode as a roguelike? In a manner of speaking, yeah. you're playing the fortress. <laughs> no, but I don't. I don't know what that game is, but it is a something. It's definitely a something. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, theoretically, I, I could also say my third is. Um, you know, I, I could put. You know, I don't know. I like. I like all. You know, Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup would possibly be a third. Uh, Cataclysm would probably be a third. Faster Than Light would probably be a third. You got a lot of third place. Everything's tied for third. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. It's I definitely have a top two. Once I get into third, it's really hard because there's there's so many that are really good but aren't quite as good as those two. Well, okay, I definitely say uh, what we can take out of this, especially from Josh's sudden third placing everything under the sun. Yes, is there are a million options yes. when it comes to roguelikes, and it is a very diverse genre. It is. And and here's and here's the best part, at least for a certain group of people, ninety percent of them are free, yeah. or at least some version of them are free. Mo- most roguelikes will supply the game in one way or another, and generally speaking, can at least be tried. I I think I think um, to actually tells of Magile, I believe there's a free version of. Mm-hmm. Um, although I would say paying the, I would say pay, play it first, but the the the, the pay, paying for it is actually pre, is is I think in my mind is worthwhile. Uh, Adam is the same way. Adam is the same way. There's a free version, but you can buy it on Steam to support, and it unlocks a bunch of different. I things. actually think the only one that isn't being offered for free now at all Caves is of Cud. well, Caves of Cud. Yeah, I would not. I would not necessarily recommend paying for that one. Um, uh, but I was going to say Unreal World. I think they also took off the free version. But oh, I, really? I'd have to double check. Oh, that's too bad. That that's that's the only one that I kind of felt a little nicky about because uh, that was a free game for like. 10 years and then I, I i could double check i should not say i should not tarnish that guy's name before i double check that actually mm. um please stand by while we check to see yeah, if should, this game is that. free or not um oh no okay it is still it is uh so it, the up-to-date version you have to pay for but version 3.40 um which was released in march uh, will always be free, but all the and anything after that you have to pay for. Yeah, he probably keeps uh, the most up to date version. Is um, I, I think I think just the version that came out in March was the last free version. Right. Um, so any any add ons after that you have to pay for, which is which is fine. Like as long as there is a free version of that, I think that's fine. It right. was specifically if you'd stop letting you get it free at all that I would have been like, yeah, that's a little little pushy. That's- I'm not a huge fan of Unreal World. I will say. 
you would you would like it a lot more than I think I do. Okay. You because you like Cataclysm. Oh yeah. Um, it is it is basically the Finnish version of Cataclysm. <laughs> the Finnish. <laughs> actually, well, one of the things, funnily enough, we actually live in the area that Cataclysm is. Yes, set we do. In, we, which we, is kind of interesting. We, we, near, we live near the Mescatonic. And University. those of those of you who actually play, um, technically, play a- Cataclysm DBA a DDA and want to know the truth of the matter is. Uh, yes, moose are dangerous. No, moose are not that dangerous. Uh, yeah, but zombie moose are dangerous. Zombie you, moose you, you are always into dangerous. dangerous. Into a zombie. Um, also, yes, Tales oh, of Majel yeah. does have a free version. So, Luke, go play Tales of Majel tonight. Um, <clears throat> I'll have to look into that. Yeah. Go stream that tonight. I won't watch you play that. I won't be streaming anything tonight, but uh, maybe tomorrow. Maybe I'll stream it tonight. Um, but yes, uh, that that is free. Um, I believe it actually technically doesn't. Uh, Cataclysm take place in uh, by Mis- in uh, east in Western Massachusetts because it takes place New by Miskatonic. No, it's New England. Oh, I, okay, I knew you could find some Miskatonic University stuff in there, which is why I assumed it took place in. I Mass. think that's just because somebody like who Lovecraft. developed for it lives in Mass. Well, I was assuming no, because Miskatonic University is uh, Lovecraft. Oh, really? It's 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 the it's where Arkham Asylum is. Oh. I did not know that. Yes, it's it's a, it's a Lovecraft. It's it's the universe in H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, does that really exist? No. Oh, neither okay. does Arkham Asylum. Well, obviously, <clears throat> I, but I was assuming that if maybe the real Muscatonic no, no actually it's, exists it's, and it's where no, it's 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 a fictional town made up by by H.P. Lovecraft, Lovecraft yeah. and is also used. It, it's the same way that like there are certain towns in in the Stephen King's books that are all uh, that are made up, but are very similar to a lot of real main towns. Right, of course, because like Maine is is Pennywise in. Well, uh, that's actually that actually does take place in Berlin. No, it doesn't. It does. It, it takes place in Maine. Yes, in Berlin, Maine. Oh, I thought you were talking about Berlin, Russia. What Russia? No, Germany. No, yeah, no. Anyway, with that, thank you very much for tuning in. Let me do the. Uh, uh, let me bring out our close out. If you have any questions, thoughts, or pitch ideas. Please send them to us at spitball.sessions at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us at uh, spitballsessions.com now. We have moved. So if you heard our earlier address, please don't go there anymore. That is no longer there. Uh, you can find Luke at twitch.tv slash the drill, T H E D R E L L E, or at the drill on YouTube. Uh, you can find me at twitch.tv slash K O H O L O S, or I am also Koholos on YouTube. Uh, you can also find us at Twitter. Luke, you are uh, the Drell with ones for L's. Okay, and I am Koholos One. Or I might just be Koholos. I should probably double check that. Anyway, uh, I'm. You could find me as Koholos. Or I also show up as Josh Nice. Uh, either way, or uh, just uh, go to Spitball Sessions Twitter, which is the uh, yeah, you can, or you can follow us uh, at Spitball Session on Twitter, and then you can find either of us. Tune in next time. Till then, keep your feet in the batter's box and your eye on the ball because we'll have another hot pitch coming your way. Ooh, yeah. Thank you for joining us for yet another fun episode of Spitball Sessions. We hope you had a good time. Please pay attention as you exit the stadium to make sure that you're not run over by any cars, trucks, or other moving objects. If you'd like to contact us, you can drop us a line at spitball.sessions at gmail.com or on Twitter at spitballsession. Please leave us reviews on your podcasting platform of choice so that other people can help find the show. Remember, we can't do this without you. And come back in two weeks for the next exciting installment of the Spitball Session. Remember, only you can prevent bad games.
You know, I found out recently that some people actually count in verbally, which strikes me as really bizarre. Well, that's that's it. It gives them timing. Five, four, three. Yeah, but no, they do. They even go down to one. I'm like, I want the silence anyway. All right, fine. I guess I sandbagged myself with that one. I'll, I'll cut this part. Yeah, no, you won't. You're gonna put that in. I guess before we get into the meat of that, I I do want to you know just put a little shout out to those guys. All right, all right. Going back to that, I, I I wanted to just give a little shout out to. Um, Should we start over? No, okay. we'll just have to cut out. It, you, you, this is this is your punishment. You have to edit this I afterwards. Know. So uh, yeah, I want to give a, a shout out to. Are you Ro- sure you actually want to give a shout out to them? <laughs> We're here now. We've buttered we've buttered our bread. We, we are not obsessed with Mick Jagger's lips. <laughs> All right. 